I have found, I've, <laughs> have you ever seen the movie, the interview with like, uh, yes, with, uh, God dang it. Like Seth, uh, yeah. Rogan. Yes. And, yes. Um, yep. They're going to, the interview North Korea guy. And remember, he's like literally giving the interview with like Eminem in the beginning. Yeah. Eminem drops something on him. He's like, what? What? <laughs> he's like, stop. <laughs> I have had podcasts with people where they have shared something and I'm like, that's bananas. It's like, I didn't even know you, right? Or they have something crazy in their story. Yeah. Like, I feel like I don't even know you right now yeah. as you're telling me. I knew that you used to be a dancer for Thunder from Down Under. <laughs> I forget your stage name. You told me about it. <laughs> in your relationship to Joe Rogan, yeah. there was something yeah. there with your guys. You had the same barber. But, I mean, honestly, why don't you actually begin at the beginning? Like, share your story for those that don't know you because you're new to this industry. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I wanted you on this podcast is the industry has, as you know, massive demand for talent and i believe that there's a lot of people that are talented that don't sit within this industry that can bring whatever they come from from the other industry in which will add more it's really the dni model right it's the diversity you know diversity and inclusion but the more introductions of ideas that come from outside the industry the more dynamic the industry becomes so my thing is I remember when we were looking for a new chief strategy officer, I was like, I need someone. At first, I just defaulted to like, I need someone that knows the industry and people know they have credibility and everybody understands. And then I was like, wait a second. That's not what I need as an optical CSO. I need someone who could actually come in and be like, why do you guys do this? Have no general knowledge and idea of standard practices or best industry indicative practices in our space and be like, okay, so that's why everybody does that. Well, why? Why don't we do something? And you've already introduced a lot of ideas that we are like, it seems like it should have been obvious to us. It's sitting at the front of our brain brains, but we kind of get, we all get kind of defaulted into these comforted, you know, models where we're just kind of trying to fall in line with the rest of the herd and try to be at the front of that herd in a very homogenous approach to market, so to speak. And now I'm like drawing myself out of those parallels and trying to figure out like, instead of trying to do more of the same, how do I just do a more of things massively different? because that's more disruptive and it allows us to differentiate ourselves. And then it allows us to rediscover better ways, be it or means, better methods. So I remember sitting down with people and like, wait a second, you're going to hire a dude who is going to come in and be one of the most important people for your business. And they have no data center experience. I'm like, yes, but just hear me out first. Right. <laughs> so, uh, there's people that are going to be listening to you talk today and they have no idea who you are. So, uh, why don't you start at the beginning and introduce yourself and we'll go back to, you know, where it all started, I guess. And then how you end up coming over here with us. So, awesome. Great. So yeah. Introduce yourself. So, uh, Joe Pinzon, not to, uh, conf confuse you with should Google uh, that. Joe Rogan. No, yeah, no, go, they should Google go, go Joe. to josephpinzon.com. I like to, uh, dabble with the silks a little bit. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's not me. So you'll see quickly, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you Kirk, you bring up a great point. So, um, you know, what's interesting is uh, I've always, since I was a kid, looked at um, everything that has happened or anything I can do and how could it be done better. And not um, not in a ego way because, uh, you know, ego is not your amigo, um, but in, in, in a way that, uh, you know, in a way that it would improve a situation. And I think it, it goes back to, um, you know, my childhood. So, and, and you, my childhood would not necessarily equate to the, the ingredients to make 
the most successful business person in, in the future. So interesting. And I'll kind of go through that. So if you fast forward to formal training, I have an MBA. Uh, you can learn all of this, but unless you have the certain ingredients, the resilience, the ability to adapt, you you cannot really apply that. You just become a normal director of a business and and without any ability to to grow it past or have the ability to to grow it past uh, you know what what your knowledge base can can afford you or the risk that you're willing to take. So I look at it from the standpoint of my childhood, and um, which was unique, uh, growing up in Chicago, in the city of Chicago, not the suburbs of Chicago. My dad like being a cop, Chicago, Chicago, Chicago. Chicago oh yeah, your dad was a popo. Yes, ninety nine percent of the people, if they're from Chicago, they're from Chicago, but they're an hour from outside the city. It's a, quite interesting. So we were born and raised in the city, and early on, at a young age, very young age, I think I was in third grade. My parents got a divorce. Being Roman Catholic. Italian people, you don't get a divorce in Chicago. The minute you get a divorce in Chicago, you're almost a charity case mm. because you've got split parents. They're living <clears> in two different uh, places in the city, and you're and you're doing visitation. And everyone else, the Irish, the we're a very ethnically divided city. Um, we're not uh, we're not prejudiced. We're just less tolerant of the races that we participate in. So. You live in an Italian community, you live in an Irish community, just because if you're going to come from Ireland, you want to have comfort and familiarity to your foods and your culture. If you come from Italy, if you come from Poland, you know, shoot. But we actually uh, moved to a Polish neighborhood. I had some Polish friends from Katy, Texas would have me come go back to Chicago just to get the mayonnaise. So it's quite interesting. But so that's how Chicago is divided and and, and that's how it's created. So. When we got a divorce, we actually moved to an Irish community, and uh, you know they were awesome. They kind of took us in. Uh, my, we were we would live predominantly with my mom, but uh, but it was very unique because Who's we you have brothers, and sisters? my brother, yeah, my brother, my my sister. I had an older brother and a younger sister, and uh, you know Chicago is different. So I would never, you know, when when we moved, when we evolved, okay, and we. We started working, and we we have a career, and we have kids, and we have our own family. I, I remember uh, buying my daughters really nice bikes, and uh, and they would drive their bikes to school, and I would make them change their bikes at the school. And our daughters were like, "What the heck, Dad? No one in Katy, Texas, had their bikes chained up for real because they yeah. just parked the bike and Different no one would get yeah. stolen." Uh, Chicago was a little bit different in the sense that. Um, you had to keep an eye out. You had to be aware. Don't just take your seat. But, you... but yeah, but we were everywhere. I mean, my God, we would um, we would go to school. We would come home. There was no cell phones. Parents would have no idea if we were home or not. Uh, parents, you know, my mom would work till seven o'clock at night. Uh, she was owned a beauty shop, and my my dad was a Chicago cop. You you just didn't have access to. Uh, to seeing what your kids were doing. I was in third grade, so that made my my sister was like in preschool, and I would go get her from daycare, sign her out, and walk her home in the city of Chicago. Uh, and my brother was older, so he would, you know, he wanted to be in a rock band, so, he, you know, he was doing what he needed to do. But that creates the dynamic of of survival at that, you the resilience of that very young age. And that just continues and extends on. I mean, I, I remember playing baseball, sandlot baseball, 
we call it Sandlot. It was actually in parking lots of the Lutheran Church by our our school, our our home. And we would say, forget about this. Let's just go to the lake. Which you get get on four or five buses. All of a sudden, you're at Lake Michigan. You know, you're 30 minutes from your house, and you're in the fifth grade. That's crazy. I mean, you're on the bus with commuters and people. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. We would never allow our kids to do this today. No. Um, rightfully so. I mean, that was probably, you know, but when I tell these stories, my parents get all upset saying, you frame this up as we're bad parents. I said, no, all the parents yeah, allowed it. Yeah, it was, it was like the there wasn't a kid that wasn't allowed. Or I think our age generation, you're in, I'm in my late 40s, you're probably around the same. And I think that it wasn't unusual for us to leave in the morning and then come back at supper time. Right. And no one knew where you were. Right. You know, right. so, and I mean, I did that while living on military bases, but I also did it when my dad moved right. off military bases. So <clears throat> I get it. I mean, yep. that was just a different time. I, you're right. I would never let my kids right. do the things that I was doing. Right. Not a chance. Right. It, so it's quite interesting. And, and, and the one thing that I could say about Chicago is, um, and then my parents specifically, they ensured that we went to the proper school system. You got the Chicago public school system. Not going to say anything bad about that, but you couldn't go. I mean, you're, you really limit your opportunity. So we would go to the Catholic school system. So, uh, went to an all boys high school and so forth, uh, uh, Catholic, uh, grammar school. Uh, so did my brother. And what's interesting about Chicago is you don't go like today, all three kids, you live in the same area, you go to the same high school. Um, you go to the high school based upon what you're good at. So if you're a science guy, you go to Gordon Tech at the time. If you were a baseball player, you go to St. Pat's. So I went to St. Pat's. My brother went to Gordon. Interesting. Um, and my sister went to a completely different high school. And hmm. so you had to figure a way to get to those schools. Were they all about all equal in... distance away from each other? No, or? they were all in completely different sides of the city. It was it was quite amazing. Interesting. Yeah. So so right off the bat, you know, as a you know, imagine the the anxiety as a high school student that your daughters have have had, or your daughters had, and your sons and and my kids have had, of you know that's consistent going to the same school, being part of the family. Imagine like you're going to a whole different school, different part of the city, different teaching systems. Uh, it's it's quite interesting. So as you develop, you know, as you develop in the city, you you again you you become part of your environment, your orbit within in Chicago. It's it's very difficult when you're in the city of Chicago to expect anything more than, for example, if someone asked me, would I be a C-suite of any sort? Would I be a strategic leader of a sales operation at the age of 15, 17, 22? I would say no. When I got my first sales job, I remember my dad asking, how are the bennies? That's Chicago talk for, I don't care how much you make. Do, do they pay for your dental? Oh, gotcha. So, I mean, it's a very blue collar environment. And so when I would say things like, you know, I don't care about that. I care about the career trajectory and the, you know, th those were foreign concepts. So, you know, you, you read the, that the book, rich dad, poor dad. So you understand what you don't know because you didn't yeah. understand, you didn't grow up rich. Same thing from a development standpoint of your education and also your career base, speaking to your parents who can't teach you of what what that would look like because they probably have never met an executive up to that point uh, in in their life. So so it is quite interesting. But really, when when I started to get older, were and, you a bad kid? Let me ask you that. Were like. <clears throat> 
Would you not have seen yourself in the C-suite because you were, like I was pressure testing the limits my entire life, right? So I could see how people were like, I could be talking to Kirk through a, a glass window with a phone next to my hand, you know, with our hands touching one day. You know, I, I was telling, uh, I did a podcast with Jared once. I'm like, I did win awards when I was in the military, but I also, I think, broke the record for being brought back to the boat um, <laughs> zip-tied the most, right? But, I mean, I never went to mass or any of those things. But I was, I think as a junior sailor, you're expected to just make meathead decisions. But for you, were you a rambunctious, you know, type of kid? That and That's why you're like, mm, I'm going to be tied up. Or because you, in your mind at that time, were like, don't know how smart you have to be to be in that role. What is it that self-imposed this? Like, I probably won't be that, you know? So, um, A, there was, you know, there was never a, someone inspirational for you to, so for me personally, there was no one inspirational to say, I would like to be like Mike, hmm. right? So they're like- a, Any a, role model? Yeah, there really wasn't a role <clears throat> model out there. So that was really what held us back. From a, from a behavioral standpoint, What's interesting is I think if you're a cop kid, all the cop, all the cops uh, treat their kids like they're Jack Bauer. Uh, the The fact is we don't like their methods, but they actually garnish some good results. So, for example, I was more afraid of my dad finding out I did something wrong than a cop. I would say put me in jail. So when I do something like, for example, I was I was peeing in this in the alley, something stupid I shouldn't have done, but that they. Chicago people don't like that. So I'm peeing in the alley. How old are you? Uh, I was a sophomore in high Teens. school. Yeah, okay. sophomore in high school, peeing in the alley, and, a, and an unmarked car comes speeding down the alley. And I'm like, oh, shit, here here we go. Guy gets out of the car, is like, what, you know, Chicago talk is F, 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 F. So, you know, what the F are you doing? Um, blah, blah, blah. And I, of course, I'm not going to say, sir, I'm really apologized. Look at my hands. I'm like, what do you think I'm effing doing here hmm. what's yeah. in my hand here <clears throat> so we were not respectful to each but that was just how we spoke to each other and uh i and i could you know the the guy was looked at me and he and he hit me in the legs as hard as he could with this billy club oh. and i was like well that hurt and then uh and he said uh and i said hey he goes who are you blah 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 i said you know i'm Joey Pins. I was Joey then. So you evolve in Chicago, by the way. You you grow up Joey. You then move to Joe in college, and then you become like Joe. Jo then you become Joseph because you've got to have the professional name because you don't <laughs> want to be Joe the plumber. So I was Joey. So it's Joey Pinzon. And so hey, I'm like this. Hey, I'm Joey Pinzon. I'm, you know, Officer Pinzon's kid. And they were like, Oh yeah, okay. Ooh. And uh, I'm gonna tell your dad. Oh, so th in that point, snaps. I was like, shit. I'd rather take another hit in the legs. So I was I had to go confront my dad. And I remember in that incident, what was crazy was my dad was a disciplinary, but no one screwed with anyone's cops kids. I remember my dad showing up at his that guy's precinct, grabbing oh, him and out of the hit you. And he hit me, grabbing that guy out of the precinct, <clears throat> pulling him out into the street in front of me and giving him a beating in front of me. I remember that. I remember my dad, we went the occasional family trip, me and my my sister was never included. My family was very oldest brother was the king. He was next in line. It was very old school, and mm -hmm. I was second. My poor sister. So we we try to show her favor today, but 
it would just my my dad said let's go ride bikes so it was me and my brother were riding a bike this guy opens the door and i he hits me and i'm fall off the bike the guy looks at me kind of laughs and walks away and my dad drive this is probably early 80s my dad's uh driving uh, away he comes back and he's like what the f's wrong with you why'd you fall off the bike i go this guy just knocked me off my bike with his car door and he goes did he say anything now you got to understand let me paint a picture for my dad he looks like this is tom Selleck, magnum pi days the shorts were very short this was nice. nba 1984 okay so back in style actually back, very short shorts terry cloth shirt with the little zipper on the button and he's wearing a uh, ankle gun, snub nice. nose, with a pair of sneakers. Okay, and so you could see the gun a mile away. The guy who hits me with the car ran into the bank. My dad runs into the bank with his gun out. <laughs> now there's a security guard at the at the thing. He's flashing the, the badge. He brings that guy out, brings him back over to his car, asks him what happened, and then gave that guy a beating right in front of me. So. The parenting was very unique. <laughs> I like the word unique. <laughs> very, probably should not be uh, uh, represented in today's parenting. Uh, but for me that have never been to Chicago <laughs> and only seen Chicago movies, I'm like, that's what I expect it to be. It, it, I expect it, it to be gritty like that. It really is. And, and you know, I'm not embellishing. These are, the, oh, the, these are crazy uh, development stories. But this is what goes to, you know, you witnessed this as a kid. It doesn't create trauma. Uh, it creates a resilience. It creates a pragmatic approach to life. It's it's there's no gray. It's, yeah. You harm, you get hurt, and uh, you know. Again, I'm not saying that's good or bad or indifferent, but that's what you like. I have to assume it, it's what what shaped me into to who I am today. Um, but as we as I started to progress, it was really interesting, and this really kind of gets centered around my my dad. I remember um, when I got my, well, I'll come back to that when I got my first job in, in sales and, and how he reacted to that. But while I was in college, so I I'm freshman year in college. And you're playing baseball in college? I'm playing baseball and enjoying life and actually had to join the military, join the ROTC through that process. And that actually kind of saved my life because it forced me to have to wake up at six in the morning. I joined the fraternity and without that, I would be an idiot. Sure. So- so really, I, I attribute the military as, as keeping me in, in tra on track to, to actually succeed. I think everyone needs some level of discipline. These kids up to them, they'll wake up at noon, they'll miss all the classes. So, But uh, I'm dealing with that today, by the yeah, way. Yeah, take a number. <laughs> I get you. So um, I, I remember my dad, he, you know, he was responsible in his district, which is 13th District in Shakespeare, for, for liquor licenses. And you know, Chicago's a unique city. It's old school. Like, for example, O'Hare, the security is not run by TSA or the federal government. It's run by Chicago Police Department. Interesting. The highway systems that usually should be governed by the state police, Chicago police. So they can get the money, they can write the tickets, and they can own the jurisdiction. Same thing with liquor licenses. It's not some specific, it's the, it's the district responsibility. And, you know, you're giving certain people a lot of power you know the money made in restaurants are not from food it's made from liquor licenses so uh, i'm not going to implicate anyone but i'm going to tell you that uh, my dad created a system created a process that allowed for uh, to ensure that uh, cops uh, would be involved undercover in providing security in after hours uh, to these restaurants that would have liquor licenses and and a civilian which would be me would be responsible for um, 
for collecting the money from the owner and then handing it out to I've the cops. I've seen this movie before. And, and I don't know if they pay taxes on this. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm not going to say I get it, I get that it. they did or they didn't. I'm assuming that they were all good tax-paying citizens and they, and they, and all, they, yeah. and they accounted for that revenue. But my, I would come in from Southern Illinois, which is six hours away, and I would come in for the weekends to to administer this solution for my father. And, uh, you know, it, and it was crazy as there were so many, as, as I stated earlier, so many dangers. You go up to the lake, you're, you're, you're out running on the city. Never as parents did they ever think, oh, my God, they're like we think today. I'm a grown-ass man, harm. and I'm worried to walk down the streets of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been in some shit. Exactly. And, you know, you're, 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 <clears throat> you know, and your parents are, you know, there's just like everything's going to be okay. So I remember, and, and you know, I'm going to throw a shout-out here to Steve Wilco. So Steve was, Steve Wilco is Steve, who is the security guard or was the security guard for the uh, Jerry Springer show. Oh yeah. Well, Steve was taller my, version of you. He, he same t- exactly. Uh, uh, interesting cat. Uh, that was your friend. He was a Marine. Up. He was a Marine and uh, he wasn't my friend. He was an older guy, but he was, uh, he was a Marine uh, and he was a Chicago cop. And uh, a lot of Chicago police get opportunities. Like my buddy next door, Joey Farina, Dennis, it was Dennis's Farina's uh, son. Uh, Dennis was in several movies. Um, uh, a popular actor it was in tons of Miami Vice. Italian he was, guy, he was Italian guy. He was in the Thief. He got his show. And the way it happens is Chicago cops say, "If you're going to run a movie here, I want to have cops on on the set to provide security, and they need stand-in and they need cops." So a lot of Steven Seagal movies, all those guys are Chicago cops that oh, were yeah. done in Chicago. Was your dad in any of those movies? My dad was never in those movies. However, he got me an audition for The Shining. I came runner-up as the, I would have been The Shining kid and probably not speaking today because I'd be messed up. That kid's messed up. Oh, but really? yeah, he actually had an audition for, for The Shining. So they, they I'm not going to say they take advantage. They do take advantage of their opportunities in, in the yeah, city. Yeah. Uh, they, they, city. They utilize their resources. So, um, so Steve, same way. Jerry Springer was getting some heat. They didn't put Chicago cops on the stage because people are beating the hell out of each other and through a dysfunctional That's right. approach. Every every show. And so they put Steve on there. But before Steve, Steve used to be one of the guys in the district that we would use as our undercover, not our undercover, but our plainclothes copper that would work the evening, make a little extra cash. Um, and so one night we were at a nightclub, uh, Cuban nightclub. Two characters come, and I was responsible for letting I also worked some of these uh, opportunities. So this this particular place was a Cuban nightclub, and I was responsible for letting people in. Uh, a little bit late hours. Chicago bars can stay open to 5, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. It's quite unique. Um, and so this it was probably 2 o'clock in the morning. These guys come walking in. They looked a little bit uh, like I, unsavory. They looked like they shouldn't have come in, but they promised me everything was going to be okay. Lo and behold, five minutes later, I see a chair fly across the floor, and it's these guys causing some trouble. I have to run in. I got to get Steve. We're throwing these guys out. All of a sudden, these girlfriends of theirs that we didn't know were inside the place. We're jumping on Steve in my back, trying to <laughs> make us stop. And we're just trying to get these guys out of this club. What was very unique about this situation were these guys were obviously on some type of drug. We didn't know what they were on, but they were pretty hopped up. Uh, and... I really felt like they were going to cause some significant trouble. They were pounding on the on the on the window, and I was outside with these guys, and I had a mag light. And I remember I remember that uh, I would turn to the side to look at Steve. Steve in Chicago, you have this this the vestibule, you have this this 
area in the middle between the main door and the secondary door and heat's blowing up so you don't lose mm-hmm. any heat from the inside. This was during the winter time at, at, when this when this incident happened. So Steve's in that kind of middle area and I'm outside and uh, and I'm not paying attention. And all of a sudden I look and I see an uh, literally an arm come up and I was about to get punched really hard in the face. I was like, oh, this is going to really hurt. But before you know it, Steve, my hero, opens the door slightly and knocks this guy out. Knocks this guy out so hard that he doesn't move. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, I've this, seen those. This yeah. guy could be dead. He didn't die. Um, but I said to my dad, hey, listen, I think we need to lock these guys up because these guys are bad characters. And my dad, my dad was at the club. He shouldn't have been, but he was. There's some rules around that. Um, but uh, my dad said no. Now, we have this park in, in his district called Humble Park, and there's Latin Kings and there's different gangs. And depending on who you are, it's Chicago, uh, it's Chicago Police Justice to drop kids off in the park. If they can get through it, it's almost like warriors. If they can get out of the park, yeah. that, was their, that was their punishment. They're going to get hurt pretty bad. Sure. And so my dad says drop <clears> them <throat> off at the park. So they were dropped off at the park opposed to going to jail. Now, it's later. It's 3.30 in the morning. We're actually 4 o'clock. We're closing the club up. And I'm inside the club, and I'm collecting the headsets, and I'm collecting the other stuff from the other guys, and I have the money to pay them, and I'm shaking the owner's hand. And as I look at the owner, his eyes get really big. And that was an indication for me that probably there's someone behind me. I have no idea because I locked the doors. I have no idea how this guy got inside the club. And as I turn, it's one of the guys. Now, this guy. He made it through the park. He made it through the park. And this guy did not look like the same guy, meaning he was pretty roughed up. He had different clothes on, and he was pretty roughed up. But before I can get my arm around to knock him out with my mag light, because this is just not a good situation, he put three shots right into the owner, right beside, right around my body. Oh, wow. I did not get hit. I was standing right there. I did not get hit. My dad... Uh, who is at this time probably, I would say, 18 years on the job, uh, was not probably ready or prepared, but I, all Chicago cops carry at any given time, 24-7, as I gave you the story around bike riding. The guy's got a gun yeah. on his ankle. So he pulls out his 9 millimeter, and it, you know he's having a hard time getting it going. So I kind of just walked away. Uh, the, you know, my dad comes circling around and the, and this guy starts running out. I was like, my God, I'm, I'm lucky. Now I already have been to basic training. Okay. okay so cause... I had some military tactical understanding of this, you know, I need to be able to react under pressure. Um, and what's funny is my dad at the time is, uh, is an army reservist is a command sergeant major. But again, when you're not a practitioner and you're not involved in these things, you kind of lose your luster. Yeah. And yeah. Get a little bit long in the tooth too. So He's not moving well. So I kind of grabbed him and I said, okay, let's, you know, I got behind him. I'm like, high, low, he's missing this guy as he's running out. Finally gets a couple shots into him, one in the back of the arm, one in the back. Uh, and then as he's running out of this place, there was a really awesome guy that I love that was raising his family. He was not from this country and he was hiding under a table, scared half to death. And the bad guy decides to shoot this guy and he's paralyzed. Oh, now, that's horrible. But yeah. And I was probably dead now because he was in his sixties at the time. So this guy gets sh- the, now this guy gets shot one more time by my dad through the window like the movies laid out in Milwaukee Avenue, boom right on the street. I'm like, oh my god, this is crazy. 
The guy who he came with, who happened to be his brother, decides to drive across the street, drive around to go get him, sees his brother laid out in the street, and my dad's firing. Now, Milwaukee Avenue is like Times Square in Chicago. 3.30 in the morning, there's thousands of people walking around. It's unbelievable. So my dad's firing like he's freaking James Bond at the people with, oh, at wow. the car. And uh, and finally, he 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 gets what what they call uh, trigger uh, freeze. His he thinks he has he thinks he's has no longer rounds, but he actually his finger froze. He could no longer pull the trigger, which is a, a condition that that happens in 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 trauma or, or firefights. Sure. So he had the situation where he couldn't trigger. The sergeant came uh, immediately came and responded, grabbed the gun out of my dad's hand, noticed that there was three more rounds. That at any given time, my dad did not have it on safety and the whole nine yards. Sure. I ran back inside to see if what was going on with the owner the guy was dead. So, you know, you look at this thing and you're like the movies, you know, there's blood everywhere. Sure. No, it was a couple holes in his body and and that was it. There's nothing you can really do. So I ran back out to see what was going on at this time. Now squad cars, undercover coppers were all assembling and they're kind of standing over the bad guy. And here comes the paramedics. And I come walking up to these guys and I'm young and I don't know, the protocol or the process and they're standing around these guys and they're talking about how the bears played so miserable <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the week prior they're talking and this guy's laying out in the street and they're just circled around him and the paramedics were like okay guys i got to get to this guy and i remember specifically it wasn't steve but it was somebody else saying if you touch this guy i'll kill you oh uh, they wanted him to expire. they want him to just expire on the street and you know, this went on for about 20 minutes. They sent the paramedics inside to take care of the other people because it was still, there were still people. I mean, it was, it was a traumatic situation. And finally the sergeant was like, we got to, we got to get this guy going. What's really interesting about this is um, I remember now being put into a squad car, go to, went to my dad's police district, um, was now sitting in the locker room by myself the lieutenant, my actual lieutenant, was my my reserve lieutenant that I had duty responsibility with, was a Chicago cop. He showed up, sat down with me, said, hey, your dad was picking you up from work, and if he didn't come... You'd be dead. I'd be dead, and people people's lives would not be saved. He's a hero. That's the story, and walks out. So now it's like six. By the way, I had the next day. I had reserve duty, and it's already six o'clock in the morning. And you hadn't slept. I haven't slept. <clears throat> and so I get in front of this board of people, and they're like, "What happened?" And I said, "This guy came in, shot people up. My dad was just so happened there because he picked me up, and he mitigated the threat. And he's and meanwhile, a year later, I think my dad got a, an award for accommodation for being uh. a hero. But <laughs> The point being is that level of it's a crazy story. I mean, you I probably a lot had, yeah, it. I probably have PTSD from it, and and the the reality is you 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 learn resilience. That's this the city life, and and so how could you if you're in this orbit? How can you ever expect a world outside of that? You know, how can you ever expect to be a Wharton MBA grad? How can you ever expect to be anything more than someone who just wants to be a fireman or a cop? Yeah. So it's quite interesting that, you know, me and my brother, my brother is a, is a very high level executive of American Family Insurance. He's been there for quite some time now. 
And and we always talk about how they can never create, a, never write a business book about us. We're a complete outlier. We're an anomaly. We should not have succeeded. We should not be running business units. We should not be dynamic leaders. Who taught us? Our orbit didn't teach us that. What ended up teaching us is our ability to adapt to the situation and respond and then take whatever formal training we've had, either through education or through application, and apply that to our business acumen. And that's what's created our ability to succeed. And then there's also the Chicago side of a little bullshit, right? So, you know, you could sell something to somebody that's not as as attractive as it necessarily should be. So you you take that charisma, you throw that on top of resiliency, you apply that to your formal training, and I, and I think it creates a dynamic leader. But again, not something I would go out and uh, and be a mentor uh, to anyone. <laughs> Listen, you got to get pressure tests like this. Make sure your dad's here to pick you up for more in case yeah. he has to shoot anybody. Exactly. But like I could see how that. Um, so that makes a lot more sense now as you put it in that context because I was like, why not you? And it sounds like that whole evolution had a life-changing effect on all of you where you're like, we don't want to be, we don't want to have this life for the rest of our lives. Right. We need to go find a better life. Did it make you, uh, I guess at the time you're in college, you're in ROTC, you're not playing baseball probably at that time. Yep. And now did that make you be like, okay, I'm not going to just get C's anymore. I need to get better grades. I need to get like, where's it like, I need to get the heck out of here. I need to yeah. go do something different. Yeah. It, well, that that's, uh, it, that's what it started. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is, is too, is dumb luck. And so, I you know, I think for me and my brother, we were always, you know, if my mom smoked, we would look at that and say, we're not going to smoke. If my dad acted this certain way, we recognized it and said, we've got to make sure we're not this way when we're parents. And, and I think it was almost an opposites be, uh, for him and I. It was quite interesting. Not Your that brother? They, my mm-hmm. brother, yeah. Not that it was that they were bad parents. It was just... Uh, um, I, I think we applied that approach to everything that we did. So, my, you know, if my dad said, hey, you don't need college, right? We'd say, we do need college. If, if, like, for example, my first job, it was, was, uh, was selling copy machines door to door. And I remember him saying, okay, uh, here, my, his lesson to me, which, you know, to his credit, he was trying to do his best. But he's like, listen, in, in my, my, business. So I can only relate to what I do, which is a cop. We will have roll call in the morning and we'll have to show the sergeant our ticket books. And no one had a conversation with each other, but we knew we would only write one ticket book that day. But then a rookie would come in and he would show the sergeant that he wrote three. And what the sergeant would do is say, okay, since Gomer Pyle over here wrote three, all of you guys would have to write three. And my dad said, don't be Gomer Pyle. And I was like, dad, if I outsell these guys, I make more money and I become their manager. Why? So it was, was, his approach was, uh, you know, don't be extraordinary. Do not do above and beyond. Don't stand out. Just be average. Don't stand out. Just stand out. Right Mm, out the Don't get the attention. Exactly. And I was like, dad, this is not going to work. In, in what I in what I do and and me and my brother would talk about that and we say okay whatever dad tells us do the opposite <laughs> we just gotta do the opposite Damn. and again it was again that was that blue collar Chicago you know th- it's a hard life there I mean you know it's it's not easy yeah um were they was back in those days was your father trying to encourage you guys to go into law enforcement 
so it was either uh, for me and my brother. It was uh, copper police. So the the our firefighter or, or fi- well he, he copper police. Uh, I'm sorry, cop or uh, army. So oh, thank, gotcha. thank you for that. Yeah, the yeah there would be no fire. My for some reason I saw I was like wow. got, it, it's worse than any any branch of the military. A cop and firemen like they Chicago like to punch each other more than anybody. The worst yeah. ca- example of of. They they hate each other so much. Cops think that firemen are just pansies. It's a whole thing. Yeah. So uh, it was either become a cop or uh, in the army. He, he that was his desire. So I was the only one that actually joined the army. Um, and so my brother didn't do that at all. He was like, I'm not, I'm not doing He's either. He's the of king. Those He's the oldest. Yeah, he yeah, I'm not going to do either of those things. But um, so that all died. It all ended with me um, for for our family. But. But you know, when when you translate that into okay, now now you how how do you practically grow? How do you lead? You know, it's you know selling. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a commodity. I don't care if it's strategic. I don't care if it's an ingredient that makes the best soup on the planet, and that soup company needs your ingredient. You have to be resilient. You have to accept no. You have to uh, you have to be in the process to not. Uh, to acknowledge that you're not going to have great days. You can't lie to yourself. You can't say everything's going to be okay. You have to immediately acknowledge the fact that nothing's going to be okay unless you make it okay. And so that's the biggest, that's the Chicago story is, you know, we tend to lie to ourselves when we start a business endeavor. Things will be okay. Hope is a strategy. It's really not, okay? So that was, I think, the Chicago, your background around resiliency and the story. And then again, if you could put yourself in a position to lead and then learn the formal tricks of the trade that someone from the Northeast growing up in, you know, Connecticut, that doesn't have to worry about what I had to worry about growing up in the city. And I'm learning what they learn, but I'm taking my practical Chicago city skills into the play I'm going to beat them all day long sure. because it's just, I'm not going to, A, I'm not going to. Because oh, you had to hustle to yeah, survive literally there. I'm not entitled and I'm going to ensure that I'm going to succeed and I'm going to press push myself as hard as I possibly can. It gets scary though in business, especially working for big business. Um, so right from school, literally worked for Konak Minolta, Japanese equipment manufacturer for 25 years. What gets scary about that is you, even a guy like me can get complacent. Because you know exactly how hard you have to work to hit the number to succeed to grow the business by a nice percentage. And your boss is three to five years out the door. So, you know, these multinational, multi-billion dollar companies all have leadership that, you know, they don't, they're not here to change the world. So if you're a young person, aggressive, and you want to change the world and you're trying to press this information into a leader who's running the clock out because they're four years from now they're just gonna, they don't care about this company. Mm-hmm. It's it becomes very difficult. So you, as as a young person, you stay out. You, you're going to be occupied because you've got a young team. You're being aggressive. You're building your business. You're getting more responsibility. But you get to a certain point where you start to be the guy who could only, may only have five to ten years on the clock. Interesting. And that's when I jumped ship and said. What am I doing here? Well, listen, I want to scratch the paint on that a little bit more, but I want to unpackage a few more things before we go back to that because, I mean, as a guy that grows up in an incubator of where the world 
the reflection of the world really is um, based on what you are immersed in in real time, not with what you're seeing on TV, I guess. And then you went from that world to two separate worlds, right? You had the army world, but you had the world outside of Chicago, right? So let me uh, let me grab us a couple more drinks real quick because I want to unpackage that because I think that's a part where what was it like going and taking the world that you're known, like best known in to a world that, is mass i mean think about how much think about austin texas versus chicago it's like the dyslexic version of right so like how did you go from the whole world lived in this incubator of chicago like there are people in chicago like people in new york that have never even had a driver's license right why do i need right Right? so like this is home i i'll get on a plane once or twice a year but this is home and i live within this so you went from that that whole world to this completely different world, which is all tech and it's international and all that stuff. So you could not have made a bigger shift. It takes a different, it takes an outlier mindset to go from, hey, this is where my family is born and raised. And I mean, like you were saying, like some people are born there and they'll never leave. They die there just like their parents and all that stuff. And then you're like, all right, so I've seen this box checked. I have this, you know, went to school. I'm, you know, got this military background too. And now I have this other network of connections and I know that what Chicago has to offer, what's the rest of the world had to offer, right? you know, from an opportunity perspective and a physical experience of life, right? I mean, like when I, I used to have to go to Europe every few weeks on business, right? And I would go for seven to 10 days at a click. I mean, I literally had a whole nother suitcase with a whole completely different wardrobe because I had been attacked or mugged enough in Europe to where I didn't want to stand out, right? And the question I would get from all these people was like, what's the food like in America? And I'm like, well, think of it like this. I mean, for us, we know that the food that you order in New England is going to be a little bit different than what you get in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. which is going to be massively different than what you get in like California. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, American food is everything, right? So I think the experiences that you have leaving a place where if you're born and raised and immersed in Chicago and you're like, this is normal. And then you go to wherever you move to next, right? I mean, physically going and being immersed in a whole new country. Right. It's, it's almost, I mean, California and Texas could not be more different. You right. Know, just like right. Louisiana, New England could not be more different or New York and New England. Right. Or New York and Louisiana. So I'm, I'm like, there's a lot of things that are valued and gained there, but you kind of have to go, you have to have a, a really shitty job before you even know what a good one looks like. You need to have worked for some bad, you need to, as if you're a kid, you have to have some bad teachers before you know what a good one is and a good coach versus a bad one, but the same for, you don't know what you don't know. So if you're like, this is normal, this is Chicago and I can live with it. I've definitely, and then you go to another market and you're like, this is either way better or I, I need to go back. You know, right. like I need, right. and, and it sounds like you have, you've been the Rolling Stone, you know, gathering no moms right. throughout your career, but right. walk me through the mindset of what it was like to immerse yourself in another world and then what that did from an impact and how it shaped you. Because you're a guy that was, your background was pretty, I mean, a pretty interesting narrative and in how you shared it with us, but why? What did you study in school or why did you say, I want to be in business? Why didn't you want to be in healthcare or finance or legal or, you know, like, why did you know that you wanted to be in business? So uh, early on, actually, I didn't. Um, my dad ran for uh, committeeman. So as a, as a police officer, he felt, hey, I'm going to run for committeeman. And 
So you know, is that below the alderman or something. It's it's right below. It's like the vice president of of that particular uh, that that alderman. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is, I remember driving, walking around, getting signatures because you had to get a petition signed for your dad to be able to be on on the ballot. And um, that was back in the day where you just open a phone book, and you'd write people's names down and you would sign them. I mean, there was no cross-referencing checking i mean i'm just you know listen back in the day we, we i'm know pretty that, sure there's things we, like we that. know that this hap- happened and and you know people died and and you know you would have they the still people voted. that they would still vote so um but this uh, this this will be a short story to tell you where i really where my head was at and i remember my dad again he taught me some interesting lessons and he said joey here let me explain something to you i'm making thirty five thousand dollars a year the job I'm about to get for this alderman makes about $40,000 a year. So I'm going to get a $5,000 raise. We're going to spend $150,000 of our nest egg. It's a two-year job. Oh. He goes, I'll never get it back. He said, why do you think I'm doing this? Because it's not what I'm going to earn. When I have the power, the earning potential is unlimited. So I originally went to school for communications and public relations for campaign management because I wanted to get involved in, in the power of politics yeah. to get people in a position to lead and have power so that I could take advantage of that. Truly, that's what was instilled to me, kind of a Chicago process. And I did a couple voluntary vo- volunteer uh, work uh, with campaigns, and I was like, this is not, this is like stuffing envelopes. This is not what I'm about i'm high level guy so i so i moved i moved my my direction into business and then candidly i was like the best way to get into business right out of school is to work in a selling opportunity right it's it you know you it it is a it is probably the best uh you know opportunity for anyone i would suggest to get into the most difficult selling process because it forces you to understand business know your customer uh, train yourself, have the organizational train, organization train you, uh, be, understand pricing proposals and strategy at the very lowest level that all, all ramps up to. So I always thought that selling is the best opportunity for anyone in business to get into. I don't care what you're selling. It's just a great, uh, it's a great opportunity. You can move in any direction from that point. So and to your point around the, the orbit of Chicago, people live and die. My wife is from a very small time in town in Texas. Those kids when they're in high school are saying i can't wait to get out of here when you're in chicago no one says and you're a real chicago person you don't say i want to get out of here where are you going this is your life there's no reason to go anywhere yeah you've got everything you need your family's here everything and so when i left it was to houston texas was my first job to run a selling uh group in houston so What's interesting in selling too is, uh, which is not necessarily the best strategy, the guy who sells the most most becomes the coach. Mm. And so they said, you're a great sales guy. Why don't you go down and run this Houston group to go start selling for, for us there? We're struggling. Sight unseen. Never been to Texas my entire life. Sold. I'm in. Got to Texas. Didn't know it was humid as hell. Didn't oh. know it was hot as hell. Didn't even know there was a freaking ocean. I mean, I'm, this is how Chicago yeah. I was. I thought that I thought Lake Michigan was an ocean. I was like, there's an ocean in Houston. 
And I tried to sell myself on the fact that that's a cool ocean till you go to the beach. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of Band-Aids in that water. (laughs) (laughs) So your first job out of Chicago, I mean, same company you started with. Same company. So you were there for like 20 plus years or something. 25 years, yeah. Yeah. So um, they said, hey, we want you to go to Houston. And you chose to go to Houston just for the opportunity for work? I chose, uh, yeah. I was like, listen, this will give me an opportunity to lead. This will give me an opportunity to increase my visibility within the company. I'll do it. And I remember my going away party. And the this was before um, this was before uh, it was uh, it was not uh, it probably was not acceptable then. But you know, Chicago is a lot of jazz. We jazz with each other, so they all made uh, shirts for my going away party that said, "There's two things in Texas, and that's oh. steers and queers." And so everyone had this shirt on. That this was my going away. They had no, my, everyone was so upset with me. They had no idea why I would leave, right? Fast forward, everyone now lives in Texas, candidly, for my yeah. family. But but they had no idea why I would leave. That's crazy, unheard of. And and so I get to Texas and, and you start running this sales organization. And the first mistake you make is, you know, hey, I'm Kelly from Bad News Bears. I'm going to catch every ball that gets hit in the air because I do not believe in any of these people on the field with me. Nice. And that's a difficult one. So that's when you have to start to set back and say, okay, what if I was to teach them what I know and then coach them through the process and, and hope that they do exactly what I say without me? And, and all you need is four or five of them to do that. And the rest of the 20 or 30 or 40 or 60 that you funnel in and out of the system, they're going to do their own thing. They don't want to work that hard. They don't want to put in the time, energy, and effort and so forth. They'll, they'll front the system. All you need is four or five or six of them. Once you get four or five or six of them, that's it. Doing exactly that process and they're refining it and you're working together. So for me, it was a it was a it was an op- great opportunity um, to launch that that career, and now in the sell, selling leadership, and and once you can get a group selling and, and rowing in the right direction and growing business ridiculously, then you get a region. So I was, I think I was the youngest, definitely youngest director of sales for Conica Minolta in history. I was definitely the the youngest uh, vice president of sales ever to hit that. So I by thirty two, I was I was a, a vice president of sales. I was responsible for. Uh, AT markets, um, which which is kind of heard of, and then just morphed into. And, and so for me, this is where this goes back to the resilience, and there's got to be something different. When you're selling the same stuff, but you're just you're just doing you're multiplying the stuff you're selling because you're using different individuals, and the technology is evolving. And so there's there's two options. You become really good at understanding the technology, so you become a technology expert. Which is uh, which? The company is like, whoa! Let's give this guy more opportunity because he really knows the technology. Or you sit back and say, okay, let's start focusing on the art of the business transaction between your the customer, maybe the customer's customer, and candidly, the organization that you're representing. And that's when I decided um, early on that I'm going to partner with a group in Chicago, which was Strategic Account Management Association, that really introduced me to principles of selling that were the highest level, that really created opportunities that were differentiation. And the, di- the word differentiation is what I was looking for. When I walk in the room, when I'm representing my organization, when I'm representing any product, any solution, when I'm designing a marketing strategy, how, what is my thought pattern is, how am I going to not smoke the cigarette 
that my mom smoked because everyone's smoking cigarettes. How am I going to be different than the message that my dad sent me in reference to don't be Gomer Pyle and write those ticket books? I want to create a differentiation that gets more yeses than noes or enables more yeses or noes or reduces or shrinks the selling process down by my conversation or talk track. Because at the end of the day, we're all selling the same stuff. It's just how are we positioning that particular product and solution? So that's when I partnered with them. That launched me into a whole new uh, orbit within Conica Minolta, which was on their global strategic account side, which I was a charter member of, to get take selling people from the organization, make them understand that there's a new way to represent our, 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 our products and solutions globally to corporate customers worldwide, similar multinational organizations, uh, and start that process. So we, I did that for uh, for fifteen year, for fourteen years, and that was the most satisfying opportunity. But again, you get to a certain point where, um, what more can you do? There's so much to do, and there's so much to introduce. But what is the company willing to to embrace and invest in growing that? And um, then that's where that that's where that becomes a challenge, and you have to make a decision, run the clock out, you know, pull another five to ten years at the same company, which would have been a great career. Look, at, I got a kid who went got a master's degree from from Pepperdine. I've got a kid in college today, and I've got you know a kid. If I would have stayed with them, Conica Minolta would have paid you know bought me seven houses, cars. I mean, sure, they sure. raised my family. I mean, they, they were my source of income. My wife, we were fortunate enough to be able to have her stay at home and work. She sacrificed, but she was able to stay home in today's day and raise our children. It was an unbelievable opportunity. So you're up against making the decision of staying with them and nothing and knowing that you can do exactly what you need to do. Your reputation's there. Everything exists. Your whole identity is wrapped up in this company for 25 years or leave and risk it all. So how old were you when you left Chicago? So I was, uh, it was 1997. 1997 is when I left Chicago. So I'm 50 years old. So we can do some reverse math there. But I went to public school. You went to private school, so you're going to have to do the math. So but, I was 18 in 1990. So, so between 20 and 24, 25 years? 24, 25 years, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. So you did about 24, 25 years uh, in Chicago, and then you reinvented yourself. And then you did 24, 25 years with Conoco Minolta, and it's time to reinvent yourself, which now you're on, you know, Joey 3.0, right? Joey, Joey the situation. 3.0, yeah, yeah. So Joey 3.0 is reinventing himself and you went from a massive company that's global billions of dollars at top line i'm sure right at two <clears throat> did you go to a startup i mean you went to a completely opposite yeah so i mean it's interesting how you go from chicago to a massively opposite i mean can houston be any different than chicago and then you have now you went from massive company to small company, and at the same time, you, the thing that transcended with you was that you, um, I mean, it's still a technology-based company, right? Right, that, fin, okay. fintech-based, yeah. So yeah. explain that. Walk people through that that don't know what that is because the genesis behind this podcast is I'm like, I want people to understand that there is a glide path for people that can operate on in the strategic side of our industry that could go into another industry because their skill set transcends, right? right? So 
and then how that looks to others because there's other people too that are going to be listening to this they're like i okay so there's a way i don't have that i think that we live in a in a world today where everybody's so specialized even at the earliest of ages right and you have kids that are like no no he he's seven but he plays baseball that's all he's gonna do we don't have a lot of multi right sport athletes everyone's specializing so for you to you know come back to this narrative of yourself i think that the narrative is is that you're breaking those concepts, those those norms of where you have to stay in that market or you have to be in the family business of some kind. You're just snapping that over your knee and going, okay, well, look, I I don't have to be – it's not like I, I can't play baseball now in my freshman year if I never played in fifth grade because all these other kids played nothing but mm-hmm. that. It's not like that. You haven't missed the game. Like the game is just beginning in our industry. We're in a, an industry that's in its infancy. Right. And um, I mean, relative to all the other industries that exist, right? So we're an emerging industry that reinvents itself more aggressively than any other industry. So that part where you're breaking some concepts, but at the same time going like, I don't, you weren't intimidated when we talked about bringing you into an industry. You weren't like, well, look, I don't know those people and I don't know that stuff as much. You were more like the hairier we discussed it almost it seemed as though the more excited you were getting right does that make sense because right. i wasn't trying to sell it i was trying to make i wanted you to back off right. the plate i was right. like if you're not going to believe in your ability to be successful in this industry why the hell would i so i almost wasn't like going reverse negative but i was like look it's going to be challenging and right. understanding these things but you were like listen so and i guess it was because you were in that reinvention of your right. mindset where uh you were willing to make the risk to go into this industry and that's the part where I'm sorry, I'm just trying to dovetail right. back around. Right. I think it's important for people to understand, like, you can start playing something as a sophomore in high school, having never done it again. Absolutely. You know, and and that's really where you're at because now you're you have potentially 25 years in this industry now that you can roll with. Right. You know, and right. half of our industry has been in this industry for more than 20 years. Right. Right. So there, there's a lot of run rate here. Right. So what's what's interesting in reference to that is back to the Harrier. So you learn. So I learned, and everyone here, I'm encouraging to learn as much as they can with the organization they're working for, especially if you're with an IBM and HP, a large organization. They've got a lot of institutional knowledge to teach. And what's interesting is when we move to the global transaction piece, the global business, dealing with multinational organizations and transacting on a global scale, is probably the most um, hairiest business transactions that you can ever imagine. You're you're dealing on both sides with different ERPs, different operating companies. Everyone's trying to transact. They're trying to honor national or global agreements. Um, and it's virtually impossible to get everyone to march to the beat of both drums. So you have got stakeholders on the buy side. You've got stakeholders on the sell side. And you're trying to endorse the solution that's beneficial for both organizations. It's impossible to have a seamless transition. Yeah. Even today, with technology today, as we move to global ERPs, SAP, it doesn't make a difference. There's still going to be transactions. There's still going to be OEMs, uh, distributors that are going to need to be participants that are their own independent companies. And so to be able to march or to be able to create a global strategy is very difficult. It creates a lot of creative thought. So when you have that experience or any experience that a company is affording you the opportunity to learn, Kirk, I went. I didn't go to small first. I went interviewed with Schneider Electric. So I went back to my boys at Strategic Out Management Association, which 
you know, we had 20 at the time, 20 board members that were the strategic leaders of the largest organizations in the world. Um, you know, uh, we're talking about IBM, uh, you know, Zurich. We're talking about all of these companies, Schneider Electric's on, on the board. And I started to interview. And the first thing they would say, first thing I would say, they would say, well, you don't understand our industry. I said, oh, I understand the industry of strategic selling. I don't care what you do. Because what you do is I will learn, but what will you will allow me to afford you the opportunity is to think differently on how you position your solution globally. I didn't get hired. I probably interviewed for 10 gigs in multinational companies didn't get hired. Who hired me was a fintech company that was a startup, a growth equity play, a 12 to 18 month, let's get this thing, let's get the EBITDA nice, let's get the top line uh, moving. Let's let's correct our burn rate. Let's uh, reinvent. Let's create some new policies and procedures so that someone acquires this company at a 10x multiple. Boom. And I said, well, this is interesting. And candidly, in the fintech space, the technology sells itself. I mean, my my goodness gracious, it's it's machine learning. All the fintech stuff is is remarkable. So it's the easiest sell on the planet. You say to yourself, well, why would they need me? Because they're stuck. They're in the fintech. They're in the financial sector. Spend a lot of money, don't know how to talk, don't know who to talk to, and don't know how to position these products and solutions properly. So once you're able to go back and compress the sales cycle, once you're able to go back and create personas, who should we be selling these solutions to? Who has the real value? Reinvent the fintech space. All of a sudden, that organization starts to change. So they hired me as their chief revenue officer to be responsible for marketing and their entire revenue stream uh, opportunity to get this organization over 12 to 18 months, knowing that I just went from 25 years of stability to that if we were to get this thing right, I could be gone in 12 months. And that's exactly what happened. So we were able to get this company exactly to where we needed it to be, get it to a position to get acquired, and and then the one of our board members, what's nice about this is when you're owned by a private equity company, they have other portfolio members that they they either are adjacent to the industry or completely different. But the fact of the matter is they need a guy like us to rinse and repeat, do exactly what you did there so they just keep to the this bands. company. Yeah, and again. they just so they just keep moving around, changing uh, benefit companies and so forth. So there was a gentleman who was uh, on the board of or who was a, a previous CEO of MasterCard who said, hey, listen, I'd like to do this again. And um, in the fintech space. And that's when you and I had a conversation. Mm -hmm. And so to encourage this group, whoever listens to this podcast, is when you're dealing with a small company, it's like getting in the back of a motorboat. You can make sharp turns. You can go really fast. You're very nimble. You can agile. You can move. The right leadership, the CEO, can make great decisions, can make decisions that's best for their organization. Uh, cannot be not short-sighted, not concerned with certain things that large enterprise leaders would be concerned with. Um, and that's refreshing for guys like me who are looking to implement unbelievable strategies. And if those CEOs can trust guys like us to come into these organizations and implement these strategies, it will it will increase revenue. It will increase improved bottom line. It'll change the way we business develop. It'll change all aspects of the branding and marketing the, the talk track within your customer base, it'll encourage the employees in the organization to see that the ship now is even moving that much faster. And 
and you could still grow and not turn into this mammoth beast like IBM, which if you talk to someone at, which was a partner of mine and you talk to someone at IBM, 90% of IBMers don't even know what 90% of IBMers do. It's yeah. a remarkable phenomenon over there. And so, you know, you could still get big because you grew it right from the beginning and everyone's marching to the beat. Everyone understands the mission of the purpose. Um, now, there's one thing I do want to mention. Conic Minolta, no purpose, just mission. Multinational, Japanese-owned company, mission, sell. Innovate, sell. Fintech space, no purpose. Get a company profitable, everyone makes money, get out, greed. Overwatch, we have a mission, but we have a purpose. So this is, for me, the first time in my entire career that I'm taking the mission and I'm marrying it to a purpose without compromising either and still able to achieve everything we want to do on the purpose side, but also ensuring the opportunity to produce and grow on the missional side. So it's really an interesting, you know, to kind of come full circle. So I would encourage everyone to, to um, don't be discouraged to get out of industries. Because if you're smart, you're educated, you can, that's translatable. Your ability to succeed, I don't care if it's the auto industry, I don't care if you're selling rubber gloves and you were in pharma. You have the ability to move around. Don't move just to pharma to pharma because it's comfortable and you know that that's going to be a good hire. Because candidly, the company you just left for those reasons is going to be the exact company you go, go to. Just a different name on the door. <clears throat> yeah. There's a... I feel like we all go through stages in life, right? And there are some stages in our life um, where maybe when we're younger in our career before we have a ton of maybe um, commitments or responsibilities, you know, where you don't have kids or a mortgage or all these things. You, I mean, you, you kind of swing more. You swing more for the fences because you could strike out more. And then, you know, when you do start establishing um, those responsibilities and duties and commitments, then you, you play a little bit more. You go from a offensive posture to more of a defensive posture of a mindset because you're now, you know, speaking only for like maybe not even all men or just people that are raised from my generation. I guess you're like, I have to be a provider. I have to be a protector. And there's and things right. that we just have, you know, wired into the tenets of our biology maybe. But I think, <clears throat> you know, you, you kind of aren't looking for the, you're mitigating risk in your growth of your career and now you're trying to play it a little bit safer and then you get to a point where maybe the kids get older or there's this and that and you're like okay now um not that i have less of a you know financial burden or risk of one aspect for the other but i'm more willing to go out and take more risk again and i've i've found that like it our careers like life are very cyclical and 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 i discovered that i'm never really in the business of hiring people that are happy right i everybody that works for a, her company uh, in, you know, everybody has made a concession on how much money they make relative to what they were making or could make somewhere else. And the only thing I had to trade for that was a purpose. So like, hey, how would you like to come work over here where you're going to probably work more and you will work harder and um, you will get paid less? Um, how does that sound, right? And no one really buys in on that narrative. But I think my thing was just chipping away everybody that basically is on my management team at some point had said no to me 
you know. So um, I just had to keep chipping away at them. They just weren't ready. I had to wait for them to be unhappy. Right. And I think some people wait until they're unhappy before they make those changes. And I think that that's okay. Um, because there'll be a part of your life again where you'll shift from that defensive posture right. and you'll go more aggressively, you know, uh, more cavalier, more confidence from the scars you have through the right. middle 20 years of your career to where you're ready to be cavalier again and, and go take some risk knowing that maybe you have a partner or someone else that back, you know, that you can do it because you have other opportunities. You could always go backwards, right? So changing to get in this industry, I, I went out and I met with, what I consider some of the stronger captains of industry and I get the privilege of calling them my friends. And some of them are actually my mentors above board. I mean, listen, man, I was at home. Yeah. I mean, we were at the compound yesterday. We had uh, guests in town and we were all grilling and doing our thing. And I looked down and I see a text from a CEO in this industry that I haven't spoken with for a while who out of nowhere said, you need to stop saying these things and start using these terms more for what you do. And the only thing I was like, thank God people give a shit about me enough to give me unsolicited coaching and advice. I will be loyal to ev forever for those people because it takes a lot of effort to take five minutes and go give someone advice knowing that some people aren't built really well to take criticism or advice. You know, they, they see it as an attack. And I was like, man, how lucky am I to have amazing people in my life that, uh, and you know, they're gonna give me that advice even if I didn't ask for it, knowing that it'd make me a better person. This space in general, I would sit down with all of you uh, about two weeks after I sat down with this ring of people that have got scars and a lot of experience high, you know, wide and deep within this space. They work for big companies, small companies. I do think there's a lot of value in going to the Schneiders and Eatons and the institutional groups because there's a lot of things that you just learn from a professional right. acumen right. basis that you can take away and go to a smaller company and be like, hey, this company's great because it's it's slingshot and wild, wild west, but what would benefit that company more is some of that structure, some right. of that discipline. Where in the early stages, you want it to be kinetic and ballistic. You yeah. want it to be what, who knows, as you reinvent yourself on a daily, and then you start reinventing yourself on a weekly, and then you get to the monthly, and then you're quarterly, and then you're arriving. At, you know, we only have to really pivot hard once a year. We're light years away from that still, obviously, but we are going out and throwing a lot of crazy shit out there. And I think that when I was having conversations with you guys, it was really on the back end of me getting some really good advice from people that I did solicit from. I would reach out to these people and be like, can I take you to lunch? I just need to bounce. I need someone to bounce some ideas off of for an hour that are gonna objectively measure and weigh something. And more importantly, they're people that have experienced that their, their input matters. It's very high value to me because I think that they've been there. They got, so I sat down and I said, hey, I'm thinking I need a new this, I need a new that, and I need you know probably a couple of these. And I thought I would, you know, this is the stagger or the rate in which I'm going to grow. So I'm going to incrementally hire one per quarter. And that means I'll take down four guys before the end of the year. And, and then I think I want to focus on these things too and this and that. And I think that we could really thrive here. And, you know, I went in there with all these really great ideas and, and you know, painting with a very broad stroke here. The collection of input I got was, uh, I agree you need those people. I don't agree they should come from the industry. Stop harvesting and, and recirculating people within this industry. It's not solving any of the problems. Right. You need to find people that are like-minded, <clears throat> but you need them to be more, more focused. So instead of finding someone that could be the, you know, my XO or my two or three, 
we had a tendency as all startups do of giving everybody five hats to wear. Mm -hmm. So here's your primary duty. These are your four collateral duties. Don't mess this up. And when you're going, you know, five different directions, right. sometimes you're kind of really going nowhere. So I had to thin that. And to do that, I had to bring people in because I needed more cycles and bandwidth, but I also needed people that could pick up where I left off and certain things. If you look at our management team, everybody represents a blind spot that I have. So I, I took the advice of hire senior leaders that come from outside the industry and let them introduce a new dynamic because that really stirs the pot more. And then they're like, don't hire them one a quarter, rip the bandit off, get them all on now, take the risk. Do you believe in yourself or not? Then, then sack up and, and just bring them on. Like, don't do the death by a thousand cuts, be bolder than that. And then, you know, the other advice was, I mean, look, I had about five serious data points that I had to do. And they're like, and, you know, with your leaders, stop having so many collateral duties, start assigning stronger swim lanes and then letting them, like, I can't, we as leaders sometimes fail in two aspects. Or when I say we, I mean me and those that I've seen. One is I have failed to explain my intent of what I need to get accomplished clear enough. And I'm learning that, I need to be able to explain it so well that even the lowest person on our team, not lowest, but the FNG, they understand it crystal clear as well. Because if, if I, it, I mean, if I can't explain it well enough, then, right. then how would they understand it? I think that is the biggest mistake that we tend to make is, is operating without clearly communicating our, we'll maybe explain our, ex, our expectations or goals, but not the intent well enough to where we allow people to autonomously operate within their own strengths to where they could achieve the results we want or be more productive in the way that we need them or their output in general is just massively improved by allowing them to get there on their own just like what we would want mm -hmm. right and then i think i think that i also needed people that were more expert or could go deeper i don't need to go wider on the leadership team right. i didn't need everybody having so many overlapping offsets i needed someone that could be very surgical and go as deep as we needed to on one aspect of business, right? So I was like, okay, instead of having Swiss Army knives, I need one blade that cuts sharper than everything else, right? right. So I started, uh, I, I mean, I've, I went on a full court press. So I was like, hey man, and you were telling me about some things. And I was like, how would you like to uh, make less money than you make right now? <laughs> and come work twice as much to help me reinvent something. And I'd be like, I know I'm sitting in the right church, I'm not in the right pew. And I think, sadly, I also discovered that I'm not the guy that could turn that corner. I wish I could, but I have to be a little bit of the all things to all people. So I had to relief, like I'm comfortable with certain things and I'll stay with those things because I feel like I'm productive and good at it. So I'm gonna do that more. And I'm like, I have to turn over everything and not be an individual contributor to anything. And now I need to trust you on that strategy or Rob on leadership or Jesse on X or Anthony on Y. Right. You know, I, I had to kind of go around the horn and reinvent myself entirely. And I had to do it quickly because this industry operates um, pretty high speed, low drag. And if you don't, if you don't pivot quickly, then um, you're outflanked you know, before you know it. So I was like, I think I'm going to go do all these things. And I came off a leadership summit where we, you know, every quarter we do these massive leadership summits and, and then we come off and we execute. And, um, coming off that summit, I was like, 
even if they executed everything I asked them to, it's still not enough. And then I had to go pivot. So then I went and I met with all these CEOs and got all the input and advice I could. And then I went back and I barely explained it to everybody else in the leadership team. And I said, we're going to be making some changes. And I started pulling guys out one at a time. I'm like, I'm going to hire four of these guys and this is why. And it's going to cost us a million dollars in SGNA. So at a minimum, you know, I'm only rough order. You know, I'm like, first of all, I'm selling both ends against the middle. I got to get you to buy in on coming into the program and I need them to buy in on many, allowing me to bring you into the program because every time I absorb more in my, right. on that side uh, is less opportunity for compensation or growth or something else right. on the other side. So I basically had to get to the point where we were moving fast enough that I said to you guys, at some point I had to be like, do you guys trust me? Because I don't think I'm going to be able to explain it in a dissertation well enough for you guys to be able to rationalize it or justify it to your own emotions. It's going to be an emotional decision, so let's do this. Did you feel like it was an emotional decision you made? Because you certainly didn't do it based on economics alone because you would have probably taken a different job where you right. were making more money, right? Right. And I remember what was it that convinced you to feel safe going into a brand new industry? I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of confidence, but knowing that this is a very small niche industry where we're all one degree or two degrees of separation from each other. Everybody's massively approachable. We have celebrities in this industry and they'll talk to you. If you even reach out to them on LinkedIn, even the top guys in the space will respond, right? right? And that's the beauty about this industry. I think the higher they get, the less of an ego they have sometimes. Right. But like, what made you feel comfortable? Was it an emotional thing? Like, uh, was it the mission? Was it more about the purpose and the people that were assigned to serve? I mean, what was it that I explained to you to where you understood it well enough to where you were ready to take the risk of putting your career on it, knowing that we all are in the same boat? You know, we got kids college to pay for and things. So like, what was it? So I, you know, I, you, candidly, it's, it's, it's quite a few variables to that equation. So, um, the, the total result was, you know, a, a sum of, uh, you did do a really good job in, in recognizing and being vulnerable up front, uh, which is very difficult, which, which is rare, um, to see someone at their leadership level say, I'm going to hire someone who's better than me. We all say this. We all say it's the best thing to do. But when you say that, you're basically putting yourself in a position to possibly be replaced. 100%. Okay. And so I've got, grown up in a situation where I've seen a lot of good leaders hire a lot of not-so-good people so they maintain their level oh, of they efficiency. Oh, they protect build enterprise Exactly. Yeah. So th really, that to be honest, that was the first time I've ever been in a process of an interview or at all at the highest level where the leader is expressing their vulnerabilities and the need for certain positions to be filled within that organization. Again, not that you weren't good at those positions, that you would be willing to relinquish the control of those particular functions for the, be for the best of the organization to grow. Very unique. That was the first thing. Second thing was, um, of course, like anything else, you've got to do a significant amount of research before you in in work into endeavor into any industry. This is such a growth potential industry that it's un, it's unheard of. It is the last frontier. You know, we're all traveling out to California to go look for gold. This is an unbelievable opportunity. 
it, it's the it's the edge of everything that happens on the front end. So all of the emerging te- trends and technologies are all will all be housed, harnessed within the data center space. At the end of the day, it's it's where we park our cars. It is. It, this tail wags remarkable. the dog. It, it's re, it's remarkable. So you've got a potential from selfish side. I'm saying, wow, uh, I could do this for. I could reinvent myself and do this for 20 years mm-hmm. uh, in, in this space and not ever leave this space. And and it's an exciting space. Third, the fact that why I chose Overwatch o- over even talking to NTT, which is one of my customers, to go look for a larger company, is the fact that. We're tying a media component, the fact that we have some IP, we've got a conference, we're able to, which are candidly for me, strategic Trojan horses for the space. Uh, it's outreach, it's additional conversational talk tracks, it's hard to quantify, but we will, to be able to tie revenue back to the media op- opportunities that we're creating. It's above and beyond normal forms of marketing. Um, so that. I immediately looked at a catalyst and say, okay, they're already in place. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I don't even have to, I don't have to do anything. All we have to do is put some more practice and process around that particular area. Uh, that was incredible. But really the, the kind of the last piece was the purpose. So, you know, I started, I've always been a Christian. I've always been uh, a call to action guy. I've, I've worked in, I've been on nonprofits. I've been on boards. I've, uh, we created Young Life in Bay City. We moved there. So I was always a, let's create opportunity. And the more and more we start to look, I started to look at this thing and said, wow. Um, from someone looking outside, who was a veteran but not a combat veteran? Who was a, took advantage of what the government had to offer and took what the what the military had to offer me? I looked at this thing to say, wow, the veteran community is really treated as a charity it's not treated as a, uh, a strike force. It's not treated as the most unbelievable mobile workforce on the planet today. It's a, hey, it's the right thing to do, hire a vet. And that didn't enrage me, but that encouraged me to say, no, I want to flip the script on that. We should be thanking Overwatch for finding these folks to put them in a position to lead and succeed because they're the most talented human assets on the planet today at their age. And they will continue to grow with proper training. And so the, the purpose component of the fact that I want to flip the script on the conversation of a veteran is not a charitable action. Even though the government throws so many different pol- programs at it to make it look like it's a charitable action. Tax deductions, rebates, the whole nine yards, uh, government contracts. That, that could be awarded because you set hire asides. veterans. Yeah. All these set-asides. It's unbelievable. But then tie it to the fact that if we all have purpose, I don't care what it is. If we all have purpose, we now can raise a family. We can be better parents. We can be better community folks. And we won't think about taking our life. So the reality is the purpose of of what Overwatch drives it to, which is scary to hear, to say, hey, we create a purpose to mitigate suicide in veteran community. That's a heavy blow. Some people don't even want to hear that because it's so heavy. They don't. They want to just say, does that really it's exist? It's negative. Yeah, people does don't that want... really exist? Suicide's scary. 
It can happen to anybody. When you see a car accident and someone dies, the first thing you say, was your seatbelt on? And so you immediately go right to the car crash with the suicide, and which is which is should happen. Um, but this function of tying in all of the resources available to the veteran community, either through funding or or some vocational opportunity, will mitigate and it be qualified, uh, quantified. So the purpose was last, but now what's crazy, it's become the first. So now it's reverse engineered to say, okay, as I develop the message and the strategy moving forward, the purpose now comes to the forefront and then everything else is reverse engineered back into telling that story. So long answer to this is there's a, quite a few variables. Um, I was never worried about uh, the risk because after I took that first risk, I needed to take that first opportunity to believe in myself to say, okay, listen, I, I, I listen to my wife this entire time. You know, you get to a certain age where your wife's saying, you're so handsome. I'm like, I'm bald. <laughs> you know, are you lying or is this real? And, you know, your wife will say, encourage you and say, you're great. You're, you're the best. And, and, you know, you just think that it's just words, but because you don't believe it in yourself. And the fact is, if you really are good at what you do, um, you can apply that anywhere. And so the risk then gets gotten removed from that standpoint. So it was less about risk. I mean, um, you know, it, the, the potential, you, you know, for us, the potential is yes. Are, are we making less? Probably. But the potential will outweigh. There'll be a still be a point where there's there's an ROI on this thing that's going to be ridiculous, candidly, just because of how well this organization is growing and pushing in the right direction and driving towards that purpose. So there's a, there's quite a few. But the first one was you know, and this is not me telling you because you're my boss. The the reality is your vulnerability to to be able to mention that and accept that and that not to be a uh, it's not a story you tell. It's something that you really believe in, and that doesn't say that you're not great at everything that you do. The fact of the matter is, yes. I have limits. Everyone has limits. Yeah, and I had to be honest with myself and realize, like, I even had to realize that at some point I may not be the CEO that this business needs, and our mission and our purpose to serve the— I mean, like, we love building data centers, and I love this industry. It's the wild, wild west. My best friends are in this space. <clears throat> our purpose is the thing that wakes me up at, you know, oh, dark 30 every morning and it gets me running. And um, I really find a lot of value in those things. And and when we start impacting people's, like, it's not every day you get to wake up in the morning and change another person's soul while doing it for work, not as a volunteer, not as a nonprofit. We are a for-profit business that's providing purpose to human beings that they find significance in themselves again and they're less likely to hurt themselves because of it. And it turns out they've probably been trained on advanced weapons, machinery, and tech. They understand a hierarchy of a chain of command, and they typically put the mission and the command first. So I could marry that person to, I can marry the company that needs that talent to the person that needs that purpose. And it became so infectious or addictive that that became the primary purpose part of joy, not the economics of top line or bottom line revenue or what our EBITDA growth was. Like I was more like, let's measure this dashboard based on how many souls we impact. And then I realized, shit, I have my limits. If we hit a plateau and I'm unable to move the needle any further to get us to have a greater impact on the veteran community, then I have to be humble enough as I hire straight 
you know, I have some OGs on my team from a leadership perspective, but I have to be able to go just be a chairman or something one day and, and allow someone that could pick up where I left off or someone in general that could be better than me. So what I guess I'm trying to say is it transcends beyond my management team. If I cannot make the greatest impact on the veteran community, then someone else that I have to, for the sake of them, because it is our purpose, then I have to assume a different role. And you're already seeing that with what I'm doing now where I'm like, okay, I have to trust, you know, Rob, my new COO or my chief of staff. You know, I need those guys from the strategy perspective. I have amazing talent on that management team. All they need is sometimes a little bit of a tweak here or there, someone to pressure test something here and there and let them know they're on the right track and to stay, you know, within the over the plate. And that's an omnipresence that's required now because we have so many talented people on the management team that contribute to revenue that they needed us. They needed to have a quarterback right. and, and someone that could thread the needle between all of our businesses to make sure we weren't compromising one thing for the other. Right. I think the hardest thing that we would have as a business is to get to the point where our growth, uh, hits a plateau and we feel like the only way we can, we can continue to put more points on the board is to shift away from our purpose to try to make up for something on the finance side. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to bring on a team that won't compromise one thing for the other. Like there is a way to make sure that the rising tide will lift all boats at the same time. You just have to make sure it's a decision. It's a decision you have to make that you're going to maintain your commitment to that without compromising your focus. Or you could make about a million reasons to justify why it's acceptable from a business perspective to make those compromises. Right. Right. I think I hired people that are like, no, uh, we can be successful at both. We should be able to uh, do an amazing thing for our employees to where they're, you know, they feel safe to come to work. They are inspired by who they work with or what we're doing. And because of those things were fulfilled when they leave every day, and we should be able to make sure that we're doing that for them. Our, our customers and our partners should benefit greatly from having um, a workforce whose only threat falls from outside the business, right? So their productivity is at a higher level because they're not worried about the politics from within the business. Now, now if you take that and you have healthy employees and if you take care of them, it turns out that they take care of your customers. And then if you take care of those customers, a lot of the things that we need in business to grow and scale kind of takes care of itself because then they allow us to maintain those relationships, which converts, you know, yes, on paper, a six month contract into a three year, four year annuity. I have clients that we had day one that we've, we've only grown with, we've never lost. Right. And right. And I think that if it's from building and growing that stuff from the inside out, then it'll self-radiate. And it right. will also attract, I hope, those that see us for what we are and they'll want to do more business with us or they'll want to partner with us and right. give us capital to be able to grow because they know that we're going to tie that back into an impact to the veteran community. Right. So we're solving the problem for labor, but we're really – and I do think that that's – a problem isn't really the right word in my opinion. I believe the word is we're on the cusp of a crisis, a labor crisis. I think a lot of people know that we're, you know, short, you know, 80, 90,000 people right. by an X amount of time. But what they're not accounting for is the, you know, the silver tsunami of the 45% of our industry that's been here for more than 20 years that, you know, they probably came from another industry that they're in and for 10 to 20 years before they started this. So they're not just looking, right? like, there's a lot of people that are going to be looking to retire, right? And we're getting ready to see the recession and what that means. Well, you know, our industry is growing and thriving through this dichotomy of where the the, uh, the economy is going to kind of trend in the opposite direction of the right. growth of our industry. So there's a lot of moving parts. And I just said, hey, look, um, I'm going to have to hire people that um, will buy in on the purpose and put that first. 
and then they'll hold the line, you know, when it comes to making sure we don't compromise what we're doing. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, I got to go get a better number financially, so go get me 50% of those candidates that don't have an, you know, we're not right. going to do that. We're going to continue to stay the course until the impact is made, right? But right. tying you guys into that is risky knowing that there's probably half my management team right now could be a president of any other company, and there's a couple of guys on my team that could be CEOs of another business. So I have to be on my game to show up and be worthy to lead that type of team of talent. And it's almost underwhelming. I mean, it's overwhelming some days because I'm like, think about the people that we have. I mean, yeah. I got on my management team combined, I probably have 150 years of experience right. of, 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 you know, with them. That's a lot for us. Yeah. We have a 12 man management team, right? So yeah, that's a strong team, but we all know each other well enough, I think, to where we could, uh, we could not, um, we could short write, short talk, you know, where we could almost talk in code, like when you're in the military, where yeah. there's people that are just speaking abbreviated and you understand what they're saying because you all understand each other's yeah. intent. That allows us to be as productive as we can be. Yeah. Yeah. You agree? I agree. 100%. Yep. Yep. And we see it every day. Yep. I think, um, I think watching, watching when you hire people that are, uh, they have the same personal constitution in life. When you bring them together, then there's really like, have you felt, what was your biggest concern coming into a group like that? Like I have as a management team where, I mean, I hired a couple of you guys that have no data center experience and you're both on this, you're on the executive leadership team, not just the senior leadership team. So were you worried about the acceptance of your peers or like, uh, the way you'd be measured and weighed because we have a lot of alphas. Right? Yeah. You know, I, if this was 15 years ago, I candidly, I would, you know, it's one of those, I hate those cliches to say, you know, you get to a certain point in your age where you start to have so much confidence in who you are that you can go in, you can go into a room, you can either lead the room or you can be part of the room uh, and you can get acceptance and, and likability. And, what I was surprised, though, because I have been in, in, you know, you get to a certain point where you're in now leadership roles, so you're with leadership folks. Ego is, you know, no one's amigo, but there's a lot of ego. Uh, you've got military ego. I mean, my goodness gracious, you're uh, if you were to if you were to explain the background of some of these people, like Rob, for example, uh, and say, okay, he's going to be on the staff. Uh, and that would be scary to 90% of the people. But when you put them in a room, not only were they accepting, they were, uh, they were interested in how you can help them improve their, the overall condition of the organization and their own business with your existing leadership team. And so that doesn't just happen. Obviously, there was a lot of prep work that, that there was a lot of uh, evangelizing that you probably needed to have happen over a course of a period of time to marinate your leadership team, to have them embrace the fact of that this is nothing but good. It's not jeopardizing. It's not taking away. It's going to be nothing but great for the organization and then accept that. And, you know, so I've been off and on. So started only uh, two weeks ago, but hanging out with the crew for three weeks prior to that, been overwhelming and there hasn't been no one's taken their foot off the gas in reference to needing receiving or wanting knowledge to increase their ability to to grow um so that's 
So to answer your question is, no, I wasn't worried. I was concerned that they would be, uh, that there would be a couple of guys that would be feeling, that would be felt alienated by someone coming from the outside in. It's no different than consultants. They grab your watch. They tell you exactly what time it is on your own damn watch. And you said, hey, listen, I could have done that for myself. And and so that's what I was concerned with. It. But we, we didn't, it wasn't realized. It it's was, a fair concern yeah. and you should be concerned. I think that we all come to work to lead or be led and we should have a high expectation or, or standard. Like I'll tell you this. I have no problem being a good Indian, but you best bring it if you're going to be the guy that I work for. And I've got to work for some savages. And I mean, I learned just as much of good things from them as bad things. So, I mean, like as parents and kids, like you love your parents, but you're like, I'm not gonna do what they did. Doesn't mean they're doing it wrong. That's what their generation was doing. It's just that we look to pick up where they left off. It's not because of a, a good or a bad, it's just a, a different, you know, and that's called evolution. Now, we have to evolve in the way that we approach these things. And that's the transparency that we needed on our leadership team. So I look at these studs and I'm like, any one of these people could go do whatever. I needed them to buy in on one thing, which is, uh, are you able to lead um, those that you also are going to be led by? Like, it's a very selfless yeah. leadership mentality to where, like, you don't ever have to be right. You, we just have to be better. So the best idea wins. And um, I learned something early. Uh you get pockets of things from people that you talk to when they can be very tangent. Like they didn't intend to have a narrative around that, but they just happened to suddenly mention something off the cuff. And that had the more profound impact on me. And, and, um, one was this guy, he's the CEO of compass and he's, he's been around for a long time and seen a lot of things and has had some major impacts on this industry. And he said something, he goes, yeah, we don't, you know, we don't, we shoot heroes. We don't need those here, right? And and one of his colleagues where he used to work with, uh, a guy named Jim Smith, who they both came from digital together, and I was like, maybe there's a mindset that existed there mm -hmm. that they were creating on their leadership team, but Jim called it the zero brilliant asshole policy, which is like, I don't care how smart you are, but if you treat people horribly, you got to be removed. Mm -hmm. So between those two people that came from a very similar you know, thing, there was a lot of things I was pulling out of them that came from the origination of the market, it seemed like. And, um, and those things I try to permeate back into our leadership team to where I'm like, listen, I'm zero brilliant assholes and we don't need any heroes here, guys. So right. no one has to posture, like the language we try to use is like, you guys are here already. So you don't have anything else to hide right. and you got nothing to prove. So just start coming to work ready to, to be led. Like you have to come here and teach as well as learn from each other. And I think that the way I positioned the new guys coming in without industry experience from a leadership perspective is that you had the experience from the leadership side that what we needed, the optics in which you view things holistically from a global perspective was what we needed strategically. And, um, and I had to say, Hey, listen, I'm going to go find someone because I can't, I'm not enough anymore. I need someone that could fucking, who has more horsepower. So, that was something that we're like, are you sure? Because that could also be someone that could one day go like this and be the CEO. And I'm like, even better. Right. If they're better at that, then I two for one. Now the the veteran community gets more of what they deserve and our industry gets more of what they need. Right. It doesn't have to be me. 
is what I'm saying. Right. Like, as a shareholder, or like it's not going to change certain things. I'll still be in orbit, able to contribute at the best way that I can. Right. But we have to, and we all know that the game's over. The party will end for all of us, whichever role we have. And the healthiest thing we could do is evolve them up. I already have a plan for what my secession is. I mean, it'll still be with us, but it'll be building not microgrids, but micro businesses that still feed the ecosystem. And there's some things there that I think that only us, only we can do with our platforms. But for you taking it back, like it's gotta be knowing that these people are open-minded for you to teach them. It's gotta be something that allows you to be more productive, but you have to be willing. Like I went to every one of them too. Just like I sat down with you and said, this is my intent and these are my expectations. Was it clear? Yeah. I went to every one of them one-on-one and said, this is my intent and this is my expectations. And they're committed to learning as much from you as they humanly possibly can, but they're also committed to teaching you because every one of them has a skill set that is better. Every one of them would go deeper than any one of us on the business on one thing that's relative to the business which is why we have a 12-dimensional leadership team that are almost all completely opposite of the other, but they offset each other's blind spots. Do you agree? Right, yeah, absolutely. And we'll continue to grow that management team as we discover right. that we have more areas of focus we need to right. improve upon. Uh, organically, we're not going to get there on our own. In fact, I don't even want people working on the things that they do really, really poorly. I mean, yeah. I do want them to be aware of it and try yeah. to improve on those things, but I'd rather they just take all their horsepower and put it more behind the things they do great because that's what makes the business move forward and that's what has the greatest impact on the veteran community by, you know, essentially helping raise awareness and money to support fighting suicide. And then we get to do the same thing on right. the mission critical side where we get to be a part of some amazing projects. We're on some of the coolest projects in the industry right now. And we mm -hmm. get to work with some of the, just the, not just the, the greatest leaders in this space, but some of the emerging ones too, that are going right. to be, they're going to make a big impact in, you know, three, four, five years from now. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Um, when you got into our industry, I mean, you had like a one month long interview process with us. And I think I brought in the entire management team one time. And I was like, I think everyone at that level that you're going to be operating at, it was important that the social dynamic and chemistry was right. Knowing that we do have, um, we have some really bold personalities Right. And, you know, the, the, that's a strength and a weakness. You know, all of our best things, you know, the knife cuts both ways, they say. So I just felt like you're, uh, I mean, I think Pat Lencioni wrote the book, you know, you got to be a humble, hungry, and smart. That's yeah. the ideal characteristics of the ideal player or team player. I think that those are the things I just needed them to feel. And that's an energetic type of thing. Don't you agree? Because yeah. you were actually probably interviewing us as much as we were interviewing right. you. Right. And I, um, I had to let you kind of sell yourself since that's one of the things that you'd be tasked with influencing right. others in terms of the decisions they make. So let's see how well you do. Right. Yep. And, yep. and I think that it was well received, but when you got in, like what was the first, you know, week or two, because you've been around for, you know, I mean, you've been helping us a little bit before you're on the clock, but let's just say you're here for a month. At what point did you feel like you made the right decision? Um, I mean, literally our first meeting, um, because I mean, it, it's difficult. So, uh, new guys come in and as the strategist to really look at what are we doing? How do we do? And, and how do we 
how do we go to market? Hey guys, we're in the data center industry and this is our new chief strategy officer. He has zero data center experience, but he's in charge of our strategy now. <laughs> Have at it. I mean, it wasn't quite that way, but they yeah. knew. They're like, yeah. no, I mean, you're at a point where you can see that it's all right. a widget and you're just playing chess. A you know? Absolutely. And, you know, these guys are well-known practitioners in their space. And here comes this guy who is going to ask them a bunch of questions on how they do it. And, um, you know, like anything else, before you can come up with a diagnosis to improve or or take your vision of what you think the organization should be and tie that into the brand and the messaging, it's very important to do a full assessment and get a complete understanding of, of philosophy, go-to-market, mission, the stuff that, yes, that's on someone's website, that's easy to read, but really... What, what does it look like? How is the sausage being made on a yeah. daily basis? Um, and that was candidly our first meeting. And they opened up. And they weren't def they weren't defensive. They weren't, you know, they, they weren't, hey, we do it this way because there's no other way to do it. There wasn't, uh, this is the way we're going to do it. This was, everyone was open to providing as much information as I needed to really start to, to, draw down a, a, a process for me to start to say, okay, these are some recommendations we can, you know, move the needle in one degree in this direction under this particular strategy can pay off significant dividends, right? It's, it's, it, it's little things like that. So that's the first thing I looked at to say, okay, how can we, without being as intrusive as possible, uh, of, of these folks that are continuing to operate because, you know, the, the last thing we need is them to second guess what's happening uh, or them feeling like uh, someone's looking over their shoulder because we need them to continue to succeed not only on their existing, but now give them additional responsibilities to continue to succeed as we start to draw this thing out. So the first day was was refreshing because everyone was open to to that. You know, I'm used to coming in and taking over salespeople that their first concern is, am I going to take their cheese from them? Yeah. Am I going to tell them that that we're going to sell differently? Am I going to take their change. customers yeah. away? Uh, you know, how are we going to be represented? And, um, you know, in teaching a salesperson a new technique within a selling strategy or selling is the most difficult thing on the planet. We're talking about someone who's 40, 50 years old, who's been alt, who gets, who has a lot of crystal things on their desk saying they were the best. <laughs> and you're telling them, hey, you can be better, right? Yeah. That's a difficult challenge. And so that wasn't, that didn't happen at your organization. I was, I was like, whoa, you know, these are guys that could have said, hey, do you know what I've done? Oh, for you know sure. the plaques that I have? Uh, who is this guy? And he's never been in the data center space. Are you kidding me? Um, so that that was that was really uh, refreshing for me to be able to to look at that and and now it's you know in a very short period of time it's allowed uh, our group to be able to create strategies um, that you know once we have that defined mission or that defined purpose and brand against our four operating companies to really draw the business moving forward and and these guys get it and it's really interesting so I. I there was never there was never a a, a concern at, at all. What do you uh, when you were doing all that research in the industry? What did you see? I mean, I'm, I mean, I have books. I've three books actually of reports printed out that I've highlighted multiple pages and tabbed and stuff like that. But like, 
I'm giving you, I'm feeding you lots of information right now or Anaglobics magazines or, you know, I'm giving you anything that I can to help you get rolling into it. From someone that has been in this industry for a long time, we feel it. We already know what the Kager growth is. We, we like, we know what's coming. We know that we're on the, you know, back end of the fourth industrial revolution. We feel like we're, you know, soon going to be entering into that fifth industrial revolution, which is going to be really the symbiotic relationship that we have with all the technologies that we've really been originating in the fourth and how that'll improve us as humans versus us just because I think that there's a lot right. of misuse of tech. Right. So what was some of the stuff that you saw in the industry? Because there's, like I said, going to be people that are looking to be reinventing themselves too. And they're like, if this guy could do it, I could do it. But he right. was reading information, plus he knew some folks. So like, what was the data that you saw that, you know, um, helped validate that you were on the right path and going into an emerging industry versus one that was, you know, like I would not want, there are some industries right now that are, are the dodo bird. They just right. don't know it yet. Right. So coming from the fintech space, first of all, highly competitive was the electronic manufacturer on the Japanese side. Xerox got a lot of competitors there. Um, you know, at any given time, if you were responding to an our global RFP, there would be six or seven suppliers at any given time. It was, it was all, it was magic how everyone knew about it fintech space everyone did the same thing but maybe a little bit different they had a little bit of a different ip you had to create differentiation difficult but still something that you can you can really succeed in if, if you change the direction and in, in the messaging the mission critical space the trend that i looked at specifically because part of my previous life at conica minalta was we had a very large uh, msp large uh, it um, uh, staff uh, which we sold into cybersecurity. So we utilized our own, you know, Cyrus was our customer or we were their customer. We used space in the data center. So there's some familiarity. So I, I looked at, okay, what are the translating or the complementary uh, technologies that, that I, and I, and I quickly was like, I'm looking at this thing the wrong way. When you said there's a crisis in labor, I go back to supply chain and supply chain is, you know, that's the, the great equalizer. The fact that we have not had wars in countries is because of supply chain, meaning Dell, we've heard of the theory of the, the conflict mitigation of the Dell theory, the fact that Dell uh, um, uh, partnered with, with China and, 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 and Singapore, I think it was Singapore, that, that the, the fact that these are countries that have been at odds with each other, but now you put an influx of billions of dollars for them to, to provide the manufacturing, the, the assembly of Dell computers and them having to work together through the supply chain. Then look at this and say, the economy is more important than our, than our conflicts. So supply chain mitigates conflict. And then you look at the reverse side what if this, there's a breakdown? What if supply chain is no longer important or there's a breakdown in supply chain? Labor is a huge function of supply chain. If we cannot produce the labor for an industry, long-haul driving, there's a solution. You know, long self-driving trucks. We don't have self-driving human assets that are going to work in the data center space and fix something. We actually need human beings, skilled, trained human beings. If there's a breakdown, it's not only a crisis for the labor component, it's a crisis for the entire industry. So there is a significant, so, so I looked at that is the 
That's the that's the the fix. That's the potential. How can we get as many human assets trained as quickly as we possibly can to be placed with either ourselves or our customers to support this space? Then it's a natural progression because you're getting the best talent, 200,000 transitioning veterans each year that are ready and willing to apply themselves and make a significant amount of money in a space that they are right now as they are working on whatever they're working on, they have no idea that they're going to be in the data center space, period. So we get them to fill the void for the opportunity in labor. So we have plenty of labor. We just have to identify, train, certify, and then implement. I think that what you and your team are going to be putting together is just going to have a really, <clears throat> I think it's going to solve the existential threat of our industry. I think that what you guys are doing and I'm watching you guys come together with these amazing ideas and you're really, you know, it's amazing to watch how you collaborate with the rest of the guys in the team because um, they just left the rev. They just love to, you know, brainstorm really cool ideas and then figure out which one seems the um, boldest and that's the one they want to go tackle the hardest I feel. And I mean, I'm lucky to have people that are still swinging for the fences, but let's do this because I mean, I feel like we got around the horn and there's a lot of this and there's going to be a podcast that we're going to do with a couple of you guys all at the same time. And um, some of that stuff I could draw out from that, but I want to shift gears back and, and start kind of bringing this one home because my objective is I wanted people to understand not who you were from the perspective of what you do for Overwatch as the chief strategy officer, but you know, a lot of the things that we do are focused on helping understand the psychology of veterans as they transition from one industry to the next. And the same is for those that we are finding that are coming from, that are non-veterans, civilian counterparts that are leaving one industry for the next, right? And I wanted those to understand, like, you could still come into this industry. You're not, because you didn't play baseball since you were five. You could still play baseball when you're 15 and you're not, going to be out of the game right and so being new to this space is not always a negative thing in fact in many cases we were hired intentionally because you're from outside the industry and i didn't need groupthink. i need i need someone that's going to introduce and pollinate our industry with ideas that came from another aspect of technology but could be applied in principle in our industry as well especially within our own business so um I think the the other leaders that i spoke with they were like really encouraging me to go from outside the industry to find that leadership the other part is, I think that, you know, what you, um, I think that where you came from really defines where you're going, right? And, and you're, I have found those that have the most colorful and creative, sadly, in some cases, uh, really negative experiences, right? You sounds like you could make the most out of some of those things. And it's the optics in which you view any problem. Like I could choose to see it in which, it was the worst thing that ever happened to you, or I can see it is the thing that was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Is not, I mean, we live in a tragic world. There's yep. tragic things that happen right. every day, and it's what we do with those things that allow us to right. determine our own future. And and it was sadly a shitty story, but it was the best thing that happened to you, it sounds like, because it helped you get a really laser focus, as an example. Right. Not sure how much you know about that, but when I, ha uh, I had cancer once, and it's like, you have all these things in life that everyone else gets all caught up in and there's all this static and noise of bullshit and small little dramas. And then one day everything's just 
and you're like, oh, okay, so everything that's important goes back to top dead center and all that other shit that isn't just kind of magically goes away. And that gives you laser-like focus. I feel like it was an advantage getting cancer. I don't wish anybody had it, but it certainly right. woke me up and made me start thinking about how to live my life in a more meaningful or urgent way. Right. And, and you know, for, for those that are going to be listening, this is why we wanted to have that sit down. I was like, hey, Joe, sit down and tell your story because people that aren't, we want more people like you to come into this industry and feel like they're not behind the game because they didn't specialize in this industry for the last 20 years. You could come in brand new and make a big impact. Right. <clears throat> so let's let's go back. There's a few things I like to ask people in these podcasts, but for yours, it's unique. And this is kind of like religion and pol politics all at the same time with one question. What's the best pizza in Chicago? So thin, I would say... Uh, oh, no, no. One pizza. One pizza. We're not like Deep 6A dish. and 5A and pizza. Uh, you know, I, I would say Lou Malnati's <sighs> or uh, Gino's. You gotta I go feel on. like I just lost half yeah. your credibility with the audience, right? <laughs> Gino's, Gino's is better. Yeah, though. Uno's is okay, but you've you've got you can only get one location to get that pizza. So I don't like that cornmeal crust. Lou, Lou Malnati's, you can get it uh, pretty much anywhere in the city you want. All right. So, um, what now? Because you have a big you have a big audience. You've got a lot of connections, and people know what you do. I'm sure if you post. There's people that track. When they when they, you're talking to people about you're in the data center, like hey, I'm in the data center industry, what do you tell them? Like, hey, I shifted. I'm working in the data center industry now, and they go, well, what's that? What do you say? So for for I don't say data center. I say mission critical space. Okay. So which is not making me sound like I'm more important than than saying that data center is not important, but. I think the most prevalent term now that we're probably all evolving towards is digital infrastructure. Yeah, digital infrastructure, yeah. Mi mission critical space, e evolving technologies, and and uh, that, that that's what I'm explaining. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, everyone. It's difficult when I'd say I work for Conoco Minolta, they thought I worked for an oil and gas industry. If I because of Conoco. It's mm. what's interesting is uh, when I say mission critical space or the data, everyone knows exactly what that is. Um, they they don't they don't have a question about it in my orbit. Even my my kids, they know exactly that. That's where, that's the endpoint. That's the commute computing spot for harnessing technology for the world for home the internet. For the cloud. Yeah, yeah, home for the cloud. So they know this. So you know, I'm explaining it, but but I do explain it that uh, the the. The, the synergies between the military and the mission critical space is, is, is wonderful. And that, you know, Overwatch is very unique in the sense that they've taken this, this mission, uh, critical space, they've tied a military spin to it, which is the same. I mean, at the end of the day, all missions are critical and, and the data center space is critical. We, we can't afford a, a, a millisecond to, to not be computing. You won't get your, your x-rays. You won't, you know, can't operate a hospital, can't operate planes. The fact is things will not operate without a data center and and our entire world will stop without data centers. So I I just explained to them that I'm I'm operating in, in a mission critical space that's required to uh that creates a lot of excitement. I uh that's interesting. I I believe that what we've done is we've arrived like a data center is the, the fourth utility. You could never imagine living in a home that didn't have plumbing or, um, or electricity. And I doubt that your 
family could imagine living in a home that didn't have connectivity. And that's, um, that's the rail of the data center. Right. So I think that it's, it is a, a utility. I almost, I think that people intuitively understand it like that. Cause I mean, drive down the highway and kids don't have Wi-Fi cause they're not tethered to something. Right. They're going to be losing yeah, their mind, absolutely. but it's a utility. Right. And, and it's, it's still, uh, it hasn't made it to the point where it's, a mainstream industry enough to where it is prevalently it's intuitive to where everybody already understands what it is i think that we have our interpretation of what it is because to some it's just a server farm it's just a, a it's a hotel right that rents suites to businesses instead of people right and they just stand up their cornfields inside of it but instead they're just rows of right. racks instead of corn People haven't arrived at how that's really the engine that fuels every other industry's growth. Every industry is tied to and limited to their ability to adapt and I mean, reach more con yeah. uh, more customers or make a bigger impact. Right. Um, they're limited by technology and all that technology goes back to a data center, right? So that whole narrative is, I always ask people and I've never got two answers that are the same, but it, it's, it's, it's cause the soup's not done cooking. Right. You get it. I, I don't think that it's arrived to be a mainstream thing yet to where we could all start standardizing right. what our interpretation of it is. Um, because data centers are getting much more complex too in the way that they're uh, arriving at, you know, a solution for high performance compute environments and, you know, quantum computing right. and robotics and AI and AR and VR and all that. So um, when you when you sit down now thinking about, you know, Joey 3.0, What's uh, what's the input or the advice you'd give to that reserve kid sitting in Chicago or some other you know rural urban market doesn't matter and and, and they're reservists and they're trying to figure out what they want they know they don't want to be where they're at and and anything outside of that seems like the right direction right. so what's your advice to that young person you know the situation Joey the situation that's um, reinventing himself at twenty four regardless of their condition. They have a family they have and they have you know they, they they feel like they can't do something because they have paralysis around their existing situation i would i would encourage individuals to have confidence that they are as good as they know they could be and once they believe that you know we always resort back resort back to or revert back to what we're bad at and you know we we used to take this training class that all they did was focus on the good things that we do. And we had to identify all the great things that we do. It's hard for an individual to talk about the great things they do. It's really easy to talk about the bad things we do. We're in our spot, in our relationships. Yes. We tell our spot, our, our, my, tell my wife how great you are, but deep down, I really want to tell her all the bad things she does and vice versa. And, and how we can fix those things. And so that's created this from cradle to grave uh, negative approach or lack of confidence inside of ourselves. So I would say, listen, have the confidence that you can do. The human brain's dynamic, but we're all built the same way. I don't care where you've grown, grown up, Chicago or in Cambridge. It doesn't make a difference. The fact of the matter is the brain's the same. God is good. He created the same system and process. You just grew up in Chicago or you grew up in a, in a mansion in, in, in the suburbs. The fact of the matter is have confidence regardless of what your situation is that you will succeed. But don't lie to yourself. Don't have hope. Don't think that you're more than what you are 
So that's that straddling cocky versus confidence on that. So if you can go through life knowing that you can succeed in any mission you can do, but you can leave the ego at the door, you will be a success, period. And so that's what I, I, I would I, I would encourage. And, and that's a success in whatever that looks like. That could be you want to go get a PhD. You want to go continue on with uh, with your your formal education. You don't want to get educated. You want to go. You you you're a transitioning veteran who wants to come and immediately start in the SkillBridge program. Get certified in a few areas in the data center, and you want to be a PM in five years and make one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year, which, by the way, surpasses anyone with a six year degree like my son who has a psychology degree that we paid a lot of money for. The fact of the matter is it doesn't make a difference. The The fact is have confidence that you can succeed in that area. And then, and then build a community of support around you, of mentors, people that believe in you, people that give you opportunities, people that are willing to, to give you advice and information, receive that advice of information and take that as, as gospel. It's Don't listen just to listen. Take that as gospel. And those young folks, they will succeed. They're, we're only our own enemy. We create the monsters are, in our mind. Enemy, yeah. yeah, I like that. That's good advice. I'll tell you, that's uh, for those that are listening, like I'm the type of guy that when I listen to podcasts, I have to rewind them like 20, 30 times, you know, multiple segments just because I want that to codify in my brain. But I agree. I, I think the way you described it was, it's a decision. That's And I believe that, I like it where everything in my life is a decision that I make. It's not like it happened, you know, because of me. It happened because of me, because I chose, right? So that's a decision. And I think that there's a lot of people, even the younger kids, you know, we have high school kids that <clears throat> the confidence is lost because they feel that they're, what they're supposed to arrive at is a, is a balance. And that balance is... Um, what's the alternative to having a perfect balance emotionally? Well, one, you're either going to be too confident, cocky, arrogant, and that's the ego, or you're going to not have enough. And I don't see as many people that are overly confident and cocky running around with anxiety and depression. I do see those that lack confidence battling those things constantly, and that's what helps contribute to that negative thought mm -hmm. cycle. And I think that we're kind of losing from the go because people – don't realize that there's no such thing as a perfectly balanced. You have to decide. Think of it from the optics of not you, but your kid. If you have a daughter arbitrarily saying, would you rather see your daughter be too confident or would you rather see your daughter not have enough confidence? And I don't believe there's such a thing as that third one, which is the perfect balance. And I'm sure there are those people out there and they're the anomalies of mm -hmm. life. But the standard is you either have not enough confidence right. or you have too much. And and the default should be for these people, like, if you're going to be failing, fail forward, fail, for, fail forward or you're mm -hmm. too confident to where um, it's not that you uh, need someone to motivate you. It's that you won't let anybody stop you from right. doing that. That's the level of confidence you need to arrive at. Whereas fuck, everything below the line, I feel like, is... A lack of confidence, this leads to a chronic cancer of thoughts. 100%. And, and you're allowed to be too confident and even have a little bit of an ego so that you do have confidence and believe in yourself enough to go take those risks. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, 100%. And that's, I think that you just said it in a much better way than me, which is why I'll listen to this part of the podcast <laughs> twice. Um, that's good advice. Is that advice 
I mean, that seems like it transcends over just transitioning out of the military into another industry, but being a working professional that, I mean, God, you could have stayed comfortable in that industry you're in forever. I could stay comfortable in this industry that right. I'm in, I feel like for a long time, because this industry isn't the same industry. Right. Mission critical isn't what it was when I started. And it's, I mean, the way that we build data centers today isn't anything like what you used to right. a year ago. And in a year from now, it'll be that much different. Right. Imagine, I bet you in the next, you know, 18 months, we'll, will generate more information in the next 18 months than we have in the history of the world combined. Right. That's how much we change. So the industry is not the same industry, right. although it maintains the same title. The advice that you have for, is there anything, you know, with a broad stroke to paint through that says, hey, listen, you could be, I mean, how old was Zig Ziglar when he started writing his books? He's like in his mid sixties or right. something like that, right? right? So I mean, like, there's a lot of people that probably measure themselves as being like, too old to reinvent themselves, right. but the reality is, is like, you're not missing anything. This industry is yep. reinventing itself all the time. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, listen, the, the reality is we're all built to improve. We're at first of the year. What do we do? We do yeah, New Year's goals, resolutions, resolutions yeah. and, and we sometimes fall short and we lie to ourselves because we overpromise and under deliver and they're not realistic. So, but the fact of the matter is we're built to improve. And sometimes we feel like we're getting into a dead end situation where we can't improve. It's everyone else's problem, everyone else's fault. Listen, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, and it's difficult being a Chicago Cubs fan because we fail more than we succeed. But even in that situation, I want to see them win all the time. And I'm disappointed when they're not winning. And I think that they're going to win the next year and the next year because I want them to win. And I have faith that they will win. And they did win for me in 2016, which was unbelievable, and I cried like a baby. But the point being is we're all built, either as a fan, you watch a sport, we're built to succeed. If you're in a situation where you're feeling like you're not succeeding, it's ne not necessarily the organization's fault. It's not necessarily your fault. You're going to have to make assess your situation and make the change. And again, I don't care if you're, 30, 40, or 65. The, 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 if you're good and you know you're good at something, go do it. Go That's do good it. stuff. Good advice. Well, listen, we're almost, let's bring it home. Last thing, is there anything that people, that you haven't shared with people that you think is worth mentioning or noting about yourself? Or, I mean, they, they could reach out to you, they could approach you on LinkedIn and I mean, what's your LinkedIn? So, I mean, yeah. So, but, or, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll take the opportunity to speak organizationally. So we're pretty bullish on our foundation. So that's the one thing that, you know, we're, we're going to be up and running. We're going to have the opportunity to grow. Um, so that's the OVAF, which we like to use a lot of acronyms because we're similar to the military, but that's the Overwatch Veterans Alliance Foundation. And, uh, that's going to be a hugely important foundation. It's a 501c3 for Overwatch specifically that we're going to be funding the missions that all of the veteran communities have put together. What we found is it's very difficult for organizations to do both. Raise the funds to support their passion. Passion comes first. No one says, hey, I'm going to raise money so I can fill in the blank. They say, I'm going to help somebody. Help someone. I need money. And that could be housing, that could be food, shelter, vocational, whatever their passion towards helping veterans are. And so we are hoping to become the financial support mechanism for the entire veteran community. So it's a V2V, uh, V2V fund, veteran to veteran fund, that allows uh, our mission is to 
immer- or encourage or enable your ability to have your mission and take less of a need to to worry about fundraising and drive. So that's the that if if you can follow this po- listen to the podcast, we'll be pushing on information. So start looking for OVAF and your ability to support it. We would love that. Um, but we think that this is going to grow into a huge uh, organizational support mechanism for the veteran community, which all ties back to our individual purpose. How far are you from being able to make a big announcement regarding uh, Operation Hint? So Operation Hit, we have an opportunity actually coming up at the uh, end of March. So we have a great golf tournament in in San Diego, which that really is going to bring home, uh, you know, three tra- three levels of transitioning uh, uh, of uh, veterans. So you've got level one, which is SkillBridge. So SkillBridge, if folks don't know what that is, it's a DOD program that allows for someone who's transitioning out of the military six months prior to sign up for this program. They come under what we call our tribe. They're, come, they're part of Overwatch. We'll do our best to place them in an environment that they find to be appealing. Could be communications, could be IT, it could be entry-level data center, operations, and so forth. HR, finance. HR, finance, it doesn't make a difference. In the data center we'll, industry. In the data center space Any or role. technology space, we'll try to <clears throat> do our best to fit these these kids into, into uh, and when I say kids, these are folks that are five, six, seven years out of high school that are professionally trained individuals, leadership training, highly skilled folks that are ready to work in this space and produce. And so that's our level one we call skill bridge because the good news is any organization that hires them, they get them, they get to use that talent for six months with no operational expense at all. No, no cog expense. It's a hundred percent the expense of the DOD. They're paid on their existing, uh, their existing pay grade and their benefits. Um, the level two is someone who's already transitioning, but is not quite out. So this is the nine month out or the, the nine, uh, or the three month out, uh, veteran that would then come to our event, hiring event. They sit down with 20, 10, 15, depending on how many employers will be there. And then they get an opportunity to interview with those folks to be placed into an opportunity for full-time employment when they're fully transitioned. And then the third is someone who is already transitioned out of the military. Could be six months, could be up to a year. Someone who's looking for an opportunity that may have now gained some experience in the data center space or certifications that now would like to work in that space. So we'll have a golf uh, we'll have a golf outing the the day before. Uh, I believe it's March the twenty eighth uh, is the actual date. That's a Monday, or it's March twenty seventh. Sorry, I should have that information, but. Um, but uh, we'll have a golf outing. The OVAF will be supporting that golf endeavor. Um, and then we will be donating $30,000 to the C4 Foundation, which is a foundation centered around the SEAL community. Um, and then the next day is Operation Hit, which is where we put 10 to 15 employers in a room and we run 300 uh, qualified veterans through that process. So encourage employers to sign up for this program. You're going to get uh, great interviews. You're going to get a great opportunity to meet some good people that have served the country. Again, don't do them any favor. Okay. They're, they're doing us a favor by working for these companies because they're great assets. So I need you, everyone to think this way. You're not doing anyone a favor by hiring them. Veterans didn't join the military to make money. They did it to make a difference. And I think that when they get out, they just want to have the opportunity to make a difference right. again. Right. So I don't, I don't say that because we want to pay them anything less than to what the proportionate value is, but it's because 
in this industry when there's the demand for labor is so high what you have sometimes are divas that want to put themselves on the commodity market and get into a bake-off to see right. who they're going to go to when it's typically the highest bidder right. and then they f and then they realize why they don't like those jobs so much and it's because they're not there to be fulfilled they're there to make money right and then they get surprised that they're not enjoying themselves right. but i think that these military veterans coming out they want to just be paid fair but they want to be in a position where they could be significantly contributing to someone else's mission right absolutely well that's good input and uh I think that what you guys and the team are going to have to do is get a steady drip of these types of things yep. going so that we could let everyone know for the sake of the community as well as the industry. Yep. So absolutely. Is there anything else you want to mention or no. say before we round this thing out? No, great talk. Excited to be part of Overwatch. I'm glad that you're here, man. So uh, it it seems like, it may have felt like for you that, we, I felt like it took forever, but maybe you felt like we were moving at record speed, but I think it was as thorough of a time we could get to make sure that this was the right place for you and and you were the right one for us right and that's yeah. what you wanted something that's mutually creative and i think we found it so i'm really excited to have your passion here and in your leadership here and i know that you know there's a lot of things here that you're going to be able to teach a lot of people and i knew know that there's a lot of amazing people here that are going to be able to show you yep. some things so you learn how to navigate throughout the industry a little bit easier but either way it's going to be an awesome year so thanks Absolutely. for being here and thanks for Thank making you. the time joe thanks All for right, your service it. thank you yeah thanks, man. Guys.